Hello, my name is Melvin Bragg and welcome to the South Bank Show. On tonight's show, we will look at a new set of Irish Republican murals painted in the streets around Sandro City, the birthplace of, of Giant Baba. Then, we will catch up with Hexen Gracie, who is getting ready to stage an exhibition at the Tate Modern, featuring his vast portfolio of sculpted heads made entirely from mincemeat, simply entitled Andrew. And finally, we get behind-the-scenes access to the rehearsal studio of Tatsumi Fujinami's new 70s disco band, Muga Wonderland. But first, an esteemed writer and musician known across the globe, George Twig. Having grown up in Margaret Thatcher's hometown of Grantham, George thankfully was able to escape the grip of rabid toadyism before falling into a far murkier world, becoming a musician in a ska band. Now a prize-winning author, winning the 2019 WXW Oberhausen Open Bronze Medal, Twig has become known by literary friends across the globe for his Robot War soliloquies and Final Fantasy Universe erotic fiction. We sent David from the Pure Pre podcast to meet George on the French Riviera and chat about his debut novel, The Rise and Fall of Ricky Dozan, a novel in 17 matches, now available on Amazon. They discussed the book, George's past, and of course, the legendary Japanese wrestler Ricky Dozan, still regarded as the greatest to ever lace up the boots by fans across the world. David, the loud one from the Purepourri podcast. We have a, a bit of a special episode today. Unfortunately, um, both Daniel and George are on assignment. But we, I have a very uh, special interview with... We have an author on the show today who's wrote, wrote a book about Ricky Dozan. You may have heard uh, may have heard of him on Twitter and seen some updates and stuff about that. But we've decided, you know, we've, we've heard so much about it. And he's been going on about it for months and months and months. We thought we'd get him on the show. So I'm just a nice wee interview. George Twig, the author of The Rise and Fall of Ricky Dozan. So hello, George. Hey, how? How you doing? Nice to be here, finally. Uh, so I'm a long-time fan of the podcast, um, and yeah, it's really nice to finally be here chatting with you. Yeah, it's, it's, good, to, it's good to meet yourself as well. I know we've... Um... We, we've had liaisons in the past online, but it's nice to speak to you over Skype. So, how are you doing today? Are you doing all right? Yeah, good. Thanks. I've been to uh, been, been been some wrestling, as as uh, tends to uh, tends to be the case in a uh, tiny tiny little uh, grimy venue in uh, in Leeds. It was uh, good. Took my partner's ten uh, year old cousin, who uh, very much enjoyed it, and I, I only started uh, talking to the kid about Farmer Burns once. So uh, you know, it's been it's been quite good. Uh, there you go. I mean, when the kid heart punches a nearby Bullet Club fan, then you'll know that she's fully in. Yeah, she's. she's She's, she's getting an Ox Baker t-shirt for Christmas, so that much is true. 
Um, but yeah, so we just thought we'd get you on just because you have the rise and fall of Ricky Doza. It's, a, it's co- cooling down in the oven, so to speak. Yeah, it is. It's just it's uh, basting in its juices. It's uh, the <laughs> the first draft of the novel is now complete and currently in the process of uh, of proofreading it, uh, sort of giving it the general once over. About a fifth of the way through that at the time of recording. So yeah, so basically, uh, imminently is uh, very much the time frame that we're looking at here. Yeah, now, um, George is a, um, a good friend of the show, and I actually got an advanced copy of the book here today. I've had a good read for it, and I have to say, it's, it's some excellent stuff. So, I mean, just before we go on, if you could give us a little bit of um, information about yourself and how how you came across Ricky Dozan. It was, it was kind of weird, actually, because like, I've been a wrestling fan for... Uh, a number of years back since uh, 2001, you know, uh, fell out of the habit of watching and then got back into it. Started watching a bit of Pura roundabout sort of uh, Wrestle Kingdom 7 time. Um, but, like, didn't really know much about Japanese wrestling outside of uh, New Japan and maybe, like, a bit of 90s uh, All Japan that I've been watching. And, uh, basically, my parents have a uh, family friend called Brian. Him and his partner spent about 20 years uh, teaching in uh, international schools in various countries, which is basically where like sort of rich people send their kids to have an English language education. And one of the uh, schools was in uh, Vietnam, which was apparently run by psychopaths. The um, deputy head teacher, apparently, if you ever disagreed with him in a staff meeting, he would just say, what do you say we go outside and settle this Australian style? I see you've played Nafe Spoonie before. <laughs> Indeed so. Um, and that's, uh, that school had a lot of Korean kids. And I think that's where he heard the story. Um, not to get too much into spoilers, but uh, for, for later, but you, you see what I mean. And uh, basically, he told me, he didn't mention the guy's name even, but he said that he knew I was into wrestling. And he said that there was this bloke in the 1950s, 1960s, who was the Japanese national wrestling hero. And he took on all the big evil Americans and he staged these fights where he beat them. And they became incredibly popular and he became a very wealthy man. And then it turned out after he died that he wasn't actually born in Japan. He was born in what is now uh, North Korea. And so that was kind of a story that intrigued me. Um, and I've always been quite interested in sort of, uh, no, I'm, I'm certainly not what you would call like a nationalist or a patriot, but very interested in sort of how identities are formed um, by people who migrate to, between one territory and the other and so forth. And yeah, uh, yeah, yeah. So and uh, once I started reading a little bit more about uh, Ricky Dozan, it kind of um, it kind of gave me the idea that maybe I could do something with it from a fictional uh, standpoint. I've written fiction before. Uh, there was a novel I wrote uh, about seventeen or eighteen. I haven't read it since. It's it's probably cack. Like I'm gonna be I'm gonna be honest. Oh yeah. Cause... If it if it was a, a seventeen or eighteen, how many great seventeen or eighteen year old novelists can you <laughs> name off the top of your head? Yeah, I mean, probably none. Yeah, exactly. I mean, I think I was. It's sort of sub Terry Pratchett because I was reading a lot of Terry Pratchett at the time. But like the difference between me and him at the, at the time is that Terry Pratchett is one of the greatest comic novelists of all time, which would make him one of the greatest novelists of all time, full stop. And I was like a you know, 17, 18 year old kid, like I say. Um, so I was like, yeah, OK, you're not going to produce, you know, gold. Um, very few people are, are capable of uh, doing so, you know, because of like, you know, lack of life experience, uh, wider reading, just intellectually as well. Um, so I did that and then I wrote some uh, short stories in about um, 2013, 2014, but uh, kind of had the hankering to uh, begin a wider project. I mean, w- weirdly enough, if, if you can believe it, because I think I've told you uh, the word count of it is getting on for about uh, 300k. And uh, like, believe it or not, this was originally conceived as a short story. 
And uh, yeah. <laughs> yeah, I know, yeah, I know. And uh, the 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 general premise was going to be that it was going to be in three parts, and the first part is my protagonist sees a Rikidoza match on the TV, becomes really enthralled with it. The second part, he goes to see Rikidoza and wrestle live, and the third part is that he sees Rikidoza after a match in a restaurant, and Rikidoza is a dick to him, uh, which he you know he was not not necessarily a very nice man, no Rikidoza, um, and basically the kid realizes that you should never meet your heroes. And that was basically going to be it. Like, I think that would have been quite good. But as you, yeah. yeah, yeah. But once you sort of um, begin delving a little bit more into Ricky Dozan's personal history and also the history of professional wrestling in Japan round about that time, um, I, I soon realised you could maybe do something on a bit more of a grander scale. So that's basically the origin of it, yeah. Yeah, uh, I can see Gado has been ghostwriting for you because it was meant to start as like a short story has ended up as a 300k word. <laughs> Home. Yeah, and then the, and then the white guy like uh, and uh, like goes over, you know. <laughs> you obviously mentioned about like Ricky Dozan being from North Korea and you know living in Japan. So I mean, did you have any issues when you're uh, obviously writing a historical novel about someone from a country whose language you don't speak and where you've never been? Yeah, kind of. Yeah, kind of. Like it's um, yeah. The 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 elephant in the room is I I am not Japanese. I do not speak Japanese. I know a few <laughs> items of vocab which I put in the novel. Um, you know, basically words which don't have an English equivalent like um, uh, Gaijin, for instance. You know, there isn't an exact translation of that word. Yeah, I think it's... you, You had difficulties in the sense that I mean, for example, there is a five-volume biography of Rikidozan available in Japanese, which would give you, you know, all the, all yeah. the biographical information that you could possibly want about him. However, not speaking Japanese and have access to that, that would that would have been a difficulty if the novel was a sort of straight-up fictionalized uh, tale of Rikidozan's life. But uh, that's not what it is, and I don't, I wouldn't want anyone to go into it thinking that it's just a straight-up uh, tale of his life because. Uh, it isn't Rikidos and isn't my protagonist. He's sort of the fulcrum around which the plot revolves. He's sort of the centre of it. But like it's it's sort of at a remove from his life. So in the sense that wasn't a big difficulty. I think the main one wasn't so much in terms of finding uh, sort of source material about his life, which is pretty well documented even in English. I mean, there's enough copies of the Wrestling Observer that sort of go off on weird tangents about him, even when it's not particularly relevant to what uh, Davy Meltzer is talking about at any one uh, point. For you I to... just talk about some, like, CMLL card in Puebla <laughs> and just goes into about how Ricky Dorzan, you know, like, yeah, like, like, like to fold up his socks in a really yeah, weird way t- or something. Yeah. 10,000 words and how he wasn't, he was actually half an inch shorter than uh, everyone <laughs> assumed. You know, the classic Meltzerisms. Uh, the main... 9,995 <laughs> words, too many. <laughs> <laughs> the, uh, the, the main sort of uh, difficulty, I thought, is not a difficulty in terms of writing technique, but one in in terms of, because you're always very uh, cautious um, if you're writing about a different culture, thinking, is this your story to tell? You know, um, yeah. there was, uh, you know, I, I wouldn't want to, I didn't want to write a story about Japan that sort of uh, essentialized Japanese culture and put, uh, like exoticized it and portrayed it as something alien because. I believe that people are, you know, people are people the world over, like for for better and for worse. Um, but at the same time, I didn't want I, I wanted to um, center my narrative definitively in Japanese culture and history because wrestling's place within that culture and history is so central to it. Yeah. Um, yeah so it's it's quite. And so these are the things you wrestle with. And, uh, for example, there was a debate a few years ago. Um, Lionel Shriver of, um, of We Need to Talk About Kevin fame, who's a writer you can uh, uh, reliably, you know, depend upon to 
position herself on the wrong side of pretty much every moral or ethical debate. And she was defending a, a friend of hers who had written a novel from the perspective of like a 14 year old Nigerian girl who was a victim of like child abuse and all sorts of like really nasty shit and telling yeah. it through this girl's voice as well. And basically people were thinking, OK, is a white Australian guy particularly the person to be telling that story? And I, you know, it's something I could sort of wrestle with in my mind. And it may seem like a tiny bit of a cop out, I guess, but um, my sort of way of coming to terms with it myself was, OK, I don't think I'm treading on anyone's toes telling this story because the story of Rick and Ozan's life is very well is very well known like yeah. I, I'm not I, I don't think I'm taking away on anyone else's right uh, to tell this story and to sort of uh, disseminate it and you know I'm not telling the story of someone like this uh, like this girl in this uh, the Australian chaps uh, novel who is very much what you might call a subaltern figure you know my yeah. my protagonist it operates within this very middle class milieu you know it's like you know the middle class story gets fucking told all the time you know um so yeah, yeah in in that sense I, I kind of i'm kind of thinking to myself um okay you know i i think i'm i'm comfortable setting my story in this culture as long as i'm treating said culture respectfully which i've done my absolute level best uh to do so if people disagree that i have done so then obviously i'll take that on the chin but you know that's the yeah, yeah. i mean it must be it must be incredibly difficult when you're because there is this fetishization of like japanese culture and stuff like that and the tendency is there where if you if you're kind of removed from it you 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 can kind of get lost in that. I mean, like, it's certainly a Western portrayal of, like, Japanese culture, like, certainly in, like, the UK and stuff like that. I mean, it, our, our exposures to Japanese culture, like, on a sort of very mainstream level or stuff like, you know, Takeshi's Castle, <laughs> yeah. Tarrant on TV, you Banzai, know, stuff like yeah. Yeah, exactly. Um, but, like, you know, stuff like that. So, yeah, no, I can, I can totally understand. It must be... Obviously, I'm not saying you've just watched like 24 episodes of Banzai and suddenly written a novel about Japanese culture, but you know, you know, you understand what I mean. You know that like it is, it must be a bit difficult to, to yeah do it with with tact, and there are, you've definitely got to have some sort of as you said, you have to wrestle with some things about yeah. whether or not it's your place to be commenting these sort of things. Yeah, I mean, like, the, uh, the um, yeah, it's absolutely true. I mean, going through the novel, like, because whenever I'd finish a chapter, I'd just go through it again, and if there was anything my uh, narrator was saying that was like, does that sound like something a Westerner would say about Japan? Like, then I'd probably just I'd rephrase it or I'd snip it out or, uh, or something like that. The other thing I didn't want to do was go too far the other way and sort of absolutely fill it with uh like look we're in japan sort of uh scene setting because like i always had this problem when i was like doing my phd and stuff like that i do all this research and because i've done this research i want to put it in the final uh thing and then suddenly yeah. you find that you've written like twenty thousand words and there's actually no original thought in it you've just stitched together things you've come across or anything like that i think actually sometimes western authors writing about japan have a tendency to do this. An example I would think of is uh, uh, Tokyo Year Zero by David Peace of uh, of uh, the Damned United fame. Now, now he's a guy who actually did live in Japan. He taught English there. He lived there for a number of years. And uh, but this novel, I kind of feel felt like he was going to almost too much trouble to include. Um, uh, so well, I guess in particular vocab, like there was a glossary at the back of Japanese terms that have been uh, used in the novel. And looking at a lot of them, you you were like, you could just have said um, 
cherry blossom rather than sakura for instance or you could have said this rather than this it's like you you've put a lot of japanese in there and i think you could have just used the english translation if it's the same obviously words like gaijin you can't do that with but um it very much felt like it was trying a bit too hard to say look we're in japan this book is set in japan do you get it on the other hand i don't want to go too far the other way from that and uh do a sort of haruki murakami type novel where you get the impression that nothing about it would particularly change if it was say set in berlin or london or anything like that yeah well i mean this is a, this is one thing i was going to mention to yourself because obviously you are uh it's well known that you are a huge like haruki murakami fan you you, you read uh, you've read all of his books is that right you, i have read... oh yeah I've, I've read them all including the newest one which uh, if anyone listening to this thinking about taking a punt probably wouldn't recommend so much it says <laughs> it's slow going not a lot happens and if you're a murakami com- completionist as i am then yeah give it a go but otherwise yeah don't but yes i have read all this stuff yeah yeah, 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 so I was going to ask this because obviously I've known that you, you've been a Murakami fan for many years. Um, is there any books or writers that kind of influenced you in, uh, like in your writings, like specifically any that kind of jumped out at you? Like, for example, Murakami, did you, did, obviously you said you didn't want to kind of neutralise it, so to speak, by particularly mm. where it could work in any setting or whatever, but I mean, what, what was your big influence? Was there any other writers that kind of stuck out more that you were. I think that. I think you're always going to be influenced, like, uh, unconsciously by the sort of things you read. It's like, like I said before, I ended up writing a novel that was quite like Terry Pratchett just because, well, not even really meaning to, but just because that was the mode of narration I had read in my own reading, uh, like, quite a lot around that point. And so even without trying, it sort of unconsciously seeps into your brain because, you know, whatever you're reading a lot of roundabout the time that you're writing that's what literature is to you and so you, even yeah. if you don't mean to i i think that you're unconsciously influenced like that i tried not to uh, sort of mimic the style of any particular author because i think that if you're trying to do that you probably won't do a good approximation of their style and it probably won't it probably won't be a good example of literature in general either you know it's it's the same in wrestling as well, yeah. where you you have like people like you you have I mean this is rife on like the US Indies and stuff where they'll do like all Japan Kings Road matches from the nineties and it, it it doesn't really work because they're they're literally just like caught they're they're copying the action so to speak and they're not really taking what made it great if you know what I mean yeah absolutely like, like the mistake people make with Kings Road is to think that Kings Road is a style and it isn't it's a storyline. It's or it's an angle. The King's Road was about the sort of one-upmanship between the wrestlers over the course of the decades. You know, this is yeah. why the if you watch a Misawa versus Kawada match from 1992, it's very different to one that you watch from 1997. And so, yeah, the the, the like that's what early ROH like someone I forget who said this, but the, it basically early ROH there were a lot of people who watched a lot of 90s All Japan and thought that the moves were why those matches were good. And yeah, yeah, no, absolutely. it absolutely isn't. I mean, there is one place in the novel I have consciously aped someone. It's a, a pastiche of, uh, one of the chapters is a pastiche of uh, Invisible Cities by Atala Calvino, which is, well, in my view, one of the best novels ever written. Um, and the reason I've done it like that is because it's a, basically what the uh, Invisible Cities, the premise of it is that uh, it's uh, Marco Polo talking to Kubla Khan, you know, back, back in day, yeah. uh, <laughs> you know, a few years ago. and um, Two brothers in the locker room. <laughs> yeah, swapping road stories. I mean, but, but ba- actually, they basically are, because the premise of the novel is uh, Marco Polo is telling Kublai Khan about all the cities in his vast empire. 
and then so basically all the novel is is just like little one or two pages descriptions of these cities and eventually Kublai Khan begins to disbelieve him and then Marco Polo has to admit that actually they're all aspects of Venice that he sort of turned these fantastical sort of uh, tableaus and um, so basically what I've done is adapted that to be about North Korea and it's sort of yeah with uh, Antonio Inoki in place of uh, Marco Polo which I thought was, and uh, the then Prime Minister of Japan, Tomiichi Moriyama, in place of Kublai Khan, because as we long-term listeners of this podcast may know, Inoki went into politics uh, and has actually had two non-consecutive stints in uh, Parliament, uh, the most recent of which for a rather dicey far-right party, as I uh, understand it. So basically, the, the, the chapter's intended as a comment on the way in which North Korea is sort of um, packaged for uh, outside um, and rendered as something quite fantastical because, you know, there's there's all these sort of uh, documentaries, maybe like, you know, when John Sweeney went to North Korea uh, that time yeah. and managed not to bellow at anyone somehow. Or, you know, there's all, all, all there's, um, you know, books about what life is like there. And a lot of them are you know, Michael, quite... Michael Palin did one. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But, but a lot of it is, uh, you know, the, the less sensitive ones are quite exoticized and they they tend to portray... It is something very, you know, unworldly, otherworldly. And I guess it is in a sense because it's a, you know, one of the most oppressive dictatorships in the world. But, you know, very often they portray the people as being like brainwashed. And I, in, in a sense, you propaganda can't but help have a, an impact on your on your psyche. But at the same time, if you look at a picture or a video of all these people, for example, weeping copiously at Kim Jong-il's uh, funeral and things yeah. like that, and your takeaway from that is these people look at them, they're so brainwashed, and not these people are going to be shot if they don't show the right amount of mourning. You know, <laughs> yeah. you know, you shouldn't assume that pe- these people are brainwashed because, you know, they a lot of them are very aware of what the uh, regime is like. I'd say probably most of them. There wouldn't be a thriving black market in North Korea if everyone completely by- bought into this Juche ideology, you know. Oh, yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. And then um, to be fair, I mean, I remember um, last season in the AFC Champions League, Bengaluru FC from India. Oh, brilliant. They they played four twenty five. Yeah yeah yeah. It's called four twenty. Nearly the weed number. Four twenty five. Blaze it. <laughs> you get five higher. <laughs> they they played them in North Korea, and there was an, an Australian. I think he's a striker or something like that. He, like he he like done interviews and stuff about it, and he's like, everyone was just really lovely. Like you know, what I mean, like every everyone was really really nice and stuff like that. And like you met lots of people and stuff and. They were all quite lovely people, and clearly he, he took away from that the fact that, yeah, it is, you know, a very bizarre, you know, set of circumstances, but the people there are just, you know, the same, the same yeah. as everyone it, else. It's like, like it's like what, what I said before, it's like, yeah, pe- people are people, like, uh, you know, yeah. where, wherever you are in the world. I, I actually thought you were going to say the Australian guy was like the uh, designated foreign player for the uh, 420 Blazit team. There was actually a, I forget the guy's name, but he was a, like, sort of... He was an American communist, sort of real true believer, and he defe- yeah. he defected to North Korea during the Korean War, and he he, yeah. he lived there and he married a yeah. Korean woman and he had some like uh, he had some kids with her and um, he did really well for himself uh, because there were very very few Americans in the country at the time and he ended up playing the American villain in like all of the movies, so he became like the biggest movie star in the country because like okay we've got him or no one. 
Yeah, he's, he was at Norman Wisdom. He's <laughs> Norman Wisdom of North Korea, yeah, yeah, yeah. He really was, yeah, yeah. Yeah, absolutely. And, and it's, it's, it's really fascinating, like, the stuff. Of, and I'm, I'm, I'm glad that... I, I was going to get on to, like, the, the general outline of the plot, so I'm guessing this would have been... A, what, 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 do you know what this, this sort of situation in North Korea would have been at the time of, say, Ricky Dozan, around about the time of the novel and, like, his sort of... Yeah, 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 I know what you mean, like, yeah, his time on top. Um, Yeah, I mean, I don't, I don't so much get into what North Korea was like back then in the novel. I do get into uh, what it was like um in maybe the 80s and 90s. There's in particular a little bit about the... um. Uh, the WCW New Japan Collision in Korea show, which I'm absolutely obsessed with. And I was like, I have to get that in the novel somewhere. And this was about sort of Inoki's overweening ambition and uh, wanting to outdo everyone. He's like, well, I'm going to uh, stage the biggest wrestling show that you know, the world has ever seen, which in fairness he did do. Um, yeah. North Korea around about the time, I mean, Rikidozan emigrated at um, uh, quite an early age. He was taken under the wing of a guy called uh, Inosuke Momota, who was a sort of entertainment impresario um, but yeah, and he sort of adopted Rikidozan after Rikidozan came to Japan and sort of uh, was a jobbing sumo wrestler. And uh, so yeah. Inosuke Momota adopted him, gave him his name, hence Mitsuhiro Momota. Um, at the time, like, um, North Korea was actually, it was still like the same sort of... Um, the same sort of regime, really, back then. But up until about the mid-70s, North Korea was actually richer than South Korea. Yeah. There were a lot of um, refugees came from South Korea to Japan, um, one of them being um, uh, Kintaro Oki, who was a uh, wrestler in the JWA, and he fetches up as a character in the novel. His is quite a fascinating story, actually. He sort of illegally emigrated to Japan from South Korea, wanting to become a wrestler. He was about, he was in his sort of mid to late 20s. And um, basically, he got banged up by the filth for uh, being an illegal immigrant. But once Rikidozan heard the story of this bloke who had uh, come over wanting to be a wrestler, Rikidozan had a lot of stroke uh, with various yeah. uh, powers that be. He actually got Kintaro. He busted out of uh, you know the detention center and arranged for him Amazing. arranged for him to um, not not become a citizen because that was very difficult for Koreans and in fact still is. But um, yeah. arranged for him to become like legally settled in Japan and then sort of like took him into his promotion, gave him a big push. Um, so yeah, the situation in North Korea back then, I you know, I, it was obviously quite oppressive, but probably no no more so than uh, South Korea, which was run by a uh, um, very you know kind of dodgy military dictatorship under a guy called Singman Ri. So uh, yeah, it very much wasn't as if the Americans were uh, backing the forces of uh, truth and justice in the uh, Korean War. It's very much like okay, who shares our economic ideology? Boom, there you go. <laughs> There we go, yeah, it's a 50-50 choice. You, obviously, you mentioned one there, but which wrestler did you find was the most interesting to write? It, obviously, apart from Ricky Dozan, was there any that kind of stuck out for you that you really enjoyed writing about? Um, well, there's, there's, there's numerous ones that I sort of talk about in, in the novel. The main ones, I think, are going back to just what I was saying earlier about the what the novel was originally conceived as. It was going to be uh, based around three famous Ricky Dozan matches. And those matches yeah. were going to be uh, one versus Luthez in 1957, uh, versus Freddie Blassie in 1962, and versus The Destroyer in 1963. And they were his most famous uh, antagonists, coming over from America, with the exception of the Sharp Brothers, who were, um, you know, well, they were a tag team. It was them versus Rikidozan and Masahiko Kimura. That was the first wrestling match ever shown on Japanese TV. That's the match that kids get talked about, taught about in history class. Um, but, um, yeah, Thez, Thez Blassie and Rikidozan, uh, sorry, Thez Blassie and the Destroyer were 
all really fascinating in their own ways to write about. I think Blassie most of all, uh, really. And if, if you ever have a chance to read his uh, autobiography, Listen Up, You Pencil Net Geeks, um, which uh, has a foreword by Vince McMahon, I would really recommend it because it's a uh, tremendous read. Uh, Freddie Blassie was, um, you know, I, I remember, um, you know, when Randy Orton was doing his Legend Killer gimmick in yeah, like yeah. the early 2000s, and he'd be like sort of, he'd be beating up guys like Hacksaw Jim Duggan and Sergeant Slaughter, you know, all, all of them sort of people. Um, but th- those were guys who were old, but they could still go in the ring. And often it did lead to an actual match with Randy Orton. But then like there was one Raw where classy Freddie Blassie came out and he was like getting on in years. He was he was quite frail. He was in a wheelchair and Randy Orton was making it know that he was going to give the RKO to classy Freddie Blassie. And JR was like absolutely apoplectic with rage and was like, Randy Orton has gone too far this time. Like you can't do that to classy Freddie Blassie. And so basically, the only experience I had of him was as this sort of sweet little old man. And then I like read some more about what he'd done in Japan. And like, he was the devil. Like, <laughs> he was like the, I mean, the reason they brought him in was because there were beginning to be people in Japan who were starting to question whether pro wrestling was on the level. And like, this was yeah. an increasing sort of discourse. One of the main papers, um, the Asahi Shimbun had stopped covering pro wrestling because in their view, it wasn't a legitimate sport and also it was too violent. And but yeah. basically, Rikidosan was like, I'll show you too violent and uh, brought in Freddie Blassie. The reason being was that, OK, if we do loads of really horrible, brutal matches, loads of blood and stuff like that, then they'll be forced to accept that uh, that it's on the level. So um, so they did these matches. Um, Rikidosan did some bleeding. Loads of people had heart attacks um, watching the uh, <laughs> the number was apparently something between 6 and 94 it's uh, it's, it's quite difficult Jesus. but um, I think there were 6 confirmed ones I don't think I don't know if any of them died but there... oh, some people were just you know putting on for effect just to get a day off work try, try, uh... <laughs> or trying to get the angle over like some audience plants <laughs> or something but uh, Blassie used to do these promos because people would ask him like are you sad about the 94 people who had heart attacks and he would say I only wish it had been 100 <laughs> <laughs> so he was just like he was a really like um really despised man um in in japan although weirdly enough there were like um like sometimes women would come up into to him in the street and ask him to kiss their babies like he was a politician and like you do know like he is his biggest wrestling maneuver is biting like that was what he did if you watch one of his matches actually i think you'd really like the uh the match Rikidos and had with Freddie Blassie, uh, certainly the one in uh, LA that they had. Um, yeah. Because, like, there's, there's no wrestling at all. It's pretty much like Blassie is biting Rikidos and he's doing <laughs> chops. It's just re- it's just basically a pub fight. Like, it's, yeah. it's, it's really fun. Um, <laughs> but amazing. Like, there's a li- so I talk about Blassie, but like, there's a little um, little chapter I just put in. I interspersed these in the, the main narrative, um, just like these little uh, oddments that don't really fit in with the main timeline, but I think are quite interesting and help you understand a little bit more about their character so basically Freddie Blassie um in 1960 I think 1968 1969 uh he got married to a Japanese woman uh mm. who he had like fell in love with and uh basically he'd, he'd sort of had a few dates with her on one of his tours and then he had some problems with his uh, with his uh, kidneys and mm. so he thought I'm gonna have to retire so he basically just sort of tried to make himself forget her and then he recovered from his ailment went back to Japan and literally the first thing he did he, he only had a first name to go on so all he did, Jesus. like, when he was in Japan, was, like, trying to track her down. 
And basically, he, uh, she, the, the woman, Miyako, um, saw Freddie Blassie was back in town. It was like, oh, right, I remember when I went on some dates with him. And she phoned the office, and uh, Joe Higuchi, who was like the ref and also did a lot of the liaison stuff with the foreigners, was like, thank God you called. He's literally just been going through the phone book, like, trying to uh, <laughs> trying to find you. And so they had a sort of a whirlwind marriage, and they left to go back to the States. And so basically, yeah. all her family knew was uh, she's married an American. And they've gone back to America to live, but they didn't know who he was. And uh, so they came back on the next tour and Freddie Blassie had to do some interviews. And then like Miyako's family were like, OK, so you, tell us about your husband. Like, who, who is he? What's he do? Is he nice? And she, she didn't want to say who he was. So she just went, oh, he's a, he's an athlete. Yeah, yeah, yeah. What kind of athlete? And eventually she had to uh, admit that it was Freddie Blassie and they went absolutely apeshit at her. And they just went, how can you be married to Freddie Blassie? He bites people, he hates the Japanese. And so there's this weird dynamic where like Freddie Blassie has to persuade his new in-laws that he's actually, that he's actually a nice bloke, but he also can't admit that wrestling's fake. <laughs> so, like, so like, yeah, Blassie was a really... Um, fascinating guy quite the Sunday dinner there oh, yeah yeah god I know like I mean you think the fucking Christmas dinner and peep show was uh, awkward let me uh, let me tell you something uh, Thed was interesting as well just for his uh, connection to like the NWA and uh, and stuff like that uh, the Destroyer as well although you're kind of a little bit hamstrung by the fact that like a lot of the most interesting things in the Destroyer's life such as him being the first white American wrestler to work as a face in Japan uh, him tagging with Barber actually moving over to Japan for four years with his wife and children all that stuff happened after like uh, Ricky Dozan's life and so you're really relying on the earlier stuff with the Destroyer which was him being the first guy to beat Ricky Dozan in Japan his maybe his collegiate career him being like the famous masked wrestler and sort of the themes of like what wearing a mask does and all that sort of stuff um barbara and enoki as well obviously yeah um yeah. especially enoki actually but like um the fascinating thing about those two people is obviously they were rivals in business and in wrestling and if you actually watch their matches like an enoki match is very very different to a barber match like you watch them both wrestle billy robinson and uh, like you can really see the difference. Inoki's a bit more sort of martial arts based. Barber, although like looking at the, looking at his size, you'd think he'd just be a big lumbering clod. But like actually, he's he's a really good technical wrestler. He knows all the holds and stuff. His matches are quite yeah. sort of standard, even though he's like a big lug. But also in terms of their personalities, is like what really makes it. I think because um, you know famously. Giant Barber was this sort of almost saint-like figure in the you know in Japanese wrestling. The man so honest that Stan Hansen worked for him for twenty years on a handshake deal because he knew that uh, he would get paid. It was said that Bar- yeah. Barber's word was better than a, a written contract. Whereas Inoki was this sort of shady guy who was uh, you know almost went to the jail for embezzling money from uh, from New Japan and um, accepted fifteen million dollars from the North Korea government to run a show in time of like the worst famine in the country's history and stuff like that. You know, so yeah, obviously like Inoki being a, a fucking like um, I mean, th- there's actually a bit where. Um, Going back to the Invisible Cities sort of pastiche, um, there's a bit in Invisible Cities where um, the bit where Kublai Khan is beginning to disbelieve Marco Polo, and I've got an equivalent in the novel where the Prime Minister of Japan is like, he's beginning to think that Inoki isn't on the level. He's been telling all these uh, toy, tall stories like he's uh, negotiated the uh, release of some hostages from Iraq. He went 15 rounds with the world heavyweight boxing champion and got the better of it. He's created this new religion out of equal parts Buddhism and Islam. He's like, I don't believe a word of it. And all that shit's true. That's the thing. <laughs> <laughs> like, like people people will think I'm, I'm, I'm making up this stuff about Antonio Inoki. I'm really not. <laughs> oh, Antonio Noki, what a man! What a you could write a novel about him. 
Like, you really, really arguably, could. probably would have been easier than like Dilworth Patrick and Ozan. The chin that wouldn't slow down. <laughs> oh yeah, his chin gets uh, his chin gets uh, lavishly described in like the uh, <laughs> like the fucking biscuit from Marrakesh de Tom Perdue. <laughs> <laughs> I'm ki- I'm kidding. It's not quite on that level, but I got to mention the chin, obviously. Like I'm I'm I'm, I'm, a, I'm a professional, goddammit. <laughs> ever wa- ever repeat viewing? <laughs> really? Oh yeah. There's a couple other things I want to mention. We we do have uh, some Q and A's. Uh, we're going to ask. Ah uh, yes, you you solicited for them on Twitter, as I recall. It should, should be very yeah, interesting. Yeah, we asked the Twitter mutants and see what they said. Um, <laughs> but um, yeah, so I mean, just I mean, just. Going, going on, obviously you mentioned about his matches with like Ruthless and the Destroyer stuff like that. One thing I was really, really um, interested in was, I mean, in terms of the availability of Ricky Dozan matches, how how complete would you say we are? Oh, like it's you're scratching the surface, honestly, in terms of what's available. It's the tip of the iceberg. You can buy like a sort of. Uh, I th- it's not Rudo Reels or it might be Wrestling Epicenter or like one of those sort of websites where where you've got basically the um, sort of potted highlights of Ricardo Zan's career, but like most of it is just clips. So you get a lot of matches, but like you maybe get two, three minutes. Some of his sumo career in there as well. Um, I think it was I think it was GTV or like um, not not the uh, not the <laughs> Lulu F one. One of these channels in uh, Japan did like a sort of. Uh, I think it was. Anyway. Yeah, they did a sort of series of uh, little documentaries about him. But again, like match footage was sort of there to tell the narrative. You weren't getting sort of like full length matches. Um, I was actually very lucky in terms of um, the matches I wanted to talk about because um, both of his matches against Luthez from 1957 are available in their entirety. I think there's about five or ten minutes clipped off the first one. But it was a, it was an hour long draw, so that was probably a blessed relief. <laughs> and um, yeah. there's a couple of matches um him versus Freddie Blassie as well. Actually, the, the, there is a match um, where he wrestles Blassie in LA, and this one really um, astounded me because before watching it, I thought what it would be was like, okay, so Blassie's the heel in Japan, but when they go to America, Rikidozan's going to be the heel and Blassie's going to be the face. Because this was 1962, you're not that far removed from the Second World War. And actually, Blassie yeah. was still the heel, and they were selling Rikidozan's <laughs> sportsmanship and the fact that he's like this sort of, he's not like the evil Japanese from the war. He's like this sort of, it's a fairly orientalist um, uh, telling of it, but like he's this respectful, honourable competitor. And I was actually astounded that Blassie was able to get that much heat wrestling a Japanese man in fucking 1962. <laughs> um, and uh, there's a Destroyer match there as well. It's not like, it's not the famous one where the Destroyer beats him. And it's not the one, uh, they had a rematch five days later, which got the absolutely monster TV viewing, like it was about 70 million people. But the, but there yeah. is a match they had uh, from uh, December, which is one of Ricardo's last singles matches. That's there. The famous match where he double-crossed Masahiko Kimura, which, again, I get into in the novel. That's there. Apart from that, there really isn't that much. Like, even the really famous match against the Sharp Brothers, the, the only clip yeah. I could find online was about nine minutes long. And the thing is, you know all this stuff is in the Nippon TV archive. Well, this is what I was going to ask. It, it's going to be like um, all that those French catch videos you know you see uh, from the 60s. They're all in like pristine, crystal clear condition in a vault. And people have tried to buy them. Like people who have, you know, got a bit of money and like they, they just want this stuff out there. And they've tried to buy it. And I know, like, I've, I've known of people who have specifically tried to buy world of sports stuff as well from itv or even just like on a on a loan or being able to watch and stuff like that and these companies are just happy to let this stuff rot 
in the vault, and like you know that the, all that Ricky Rose and stuff is absolutely going to be there, probably digitally remastered every <laughs> fifteen years for no apparent reason. It's just like yeah. Sh- Sh- Shinzo Abe, like uh, if you're prime minister of Japan, you just get a secret screening once a year of like the choice Ricky Rose and cuts. It's like this fucking secret society. That's what the Nippon yeah. Kaigi is. Yeah, it's like um, it's like a, it's like a WWE when you work at WWE. Um, they have the thing where uh, in I think it's in Titan Towers, you can you can like ask them to they'll set it up where you can go and watch in a room any piece of footage they have. Oh, I think, Col- is... I think Colt Cabana had it. I think Colt Cabana did it once I'm sure. And yeah, I think he asked for like Bret Hart versus Tom McGee. Uh, he asked for it every single time, and they always yeah. said no. The only video they wouldn't let him watch. <laughs> yeah, which, which funnily enough, turned up this week. Oh yeah, I don't online. think it's. I don't know if it's the infamous Bret Hart Tom McGee match, but it's a Bret Hart Tom McGee match. Yeah, and even right. then, like that's that's brilliant. But yeah, all this stuff's just there. Yeah, and like you absolutely even just to go in and sit for like ten hours and just sit and watch it all, and then just you know. It'd be bittersweet because you'd be like, you'd see all this and then you'd be like, you'd know that no one else would ever see it and it would just be kind of left there and you could really share it. But yeah, it's, it's, it's so like weird. it's like that album the Wu Tang Clan did and then that fucking uh, farmer douchebag um, uh, bought, oh, bought it. Really? Yeah. Yeah. Once upon a time in Shaolin, that was it. Yeah. Um, yeah, uh, yeah. Yeah. The um, yeah, thing about world of sport as well, like the um, you know the wrestling channel really did like the wrestling community a solid just buying loads of tapes because like all the, pretty much all the world of sport stuff that's out there like on YouTube. That's just wrestling channel ribs. Oh yeah, it, it usually was... you, you see all the the EPGs and stuff like that, and like, all the um, like the the logos and fonts and stuff like all this whole the wrestling channel. Yeah, yeah, it was just rotting in Greg Dyke's basement, like um, up until uh, up until that point. But uh, yeah, I, I went to the Louvre a few years ago, and uh, one of the like one of the really famous paintings. I don't know if it was the Mona Lisa, but it was like one of the real famous ones. It just said like sponsored by a generous grant from NTV. It was like, oh, you got money for this, have you? But you haven't got. <laughs> You people as good as sponsored many paintings of the DVD <laughs> money you'd have got from these Rick and matches. Yeah, I, but um, I mean the, the the matches are actually pretty good, like uh, as well. Like um, I think the best ones probably uh, the destroyer Rick and is clearly like off his face on pain pills. Um, in that match, it's like only it's only a couple of weeks before he died, and he like had a lot of problems with substance abuse, which again is something I get something I get into. The destroyer matches are good. I was really not relishing the prospect of watching a load of Rick and matches. Well, this is this. It. I, I, I've, made, I've mentioned this before in the podcast before. I don't generally like wrestling this before I was born. So if you said <laughs> to me, hey, David, do you want to watch a whole lot of matches from 1962? I'd be like, no, no, I really <laughs> God, no. But like, and obviously you kind of have to taper your expectations about these sort of things. Like, yeah. you know, um, it's like music when you have like you know like like heavy metal or punk or something like that. The, the albums that came out in like nineteen eighty four, you know, people revere them and they love them because of what they were at the time. They're not yeah. necessarily that good compared to stuff now, you know, like technically and stuff like that. Yeah, sounds... you shouldn't go into uh, King Diamond expecting Slayer, you know. <laughs> yeah, yeah, exactly. It's just like yeah, um, but uh, like those sort of things, like I think it, it takes you back to this sort of time and gives you a little glimpse into a, you know a, a, a snapshot into a period that you never see and it is, it is it is very interesting to be yeah there. i would expect him to be like big daddy level in terms of uh, in terms of his work because as big daddy proves you certainly did not need to be a technical maestro to be the most over wrestler in your country absolutely and that, 
And actually, I was very p- pleasantly surprised uh, by like how technically sound uh, Rikidozan was. Like the move set is quite limited back in uh, as it was you know, back in the day. Like because a lot of really famous moves hadn't been invented by Japanese women in the eighties yet. So uh, <laughs> all by all by Luthez, who like um, you know invented quite a lot of that stuff. Um, but and the pace is very slow. Like I, I took notes on literally every single thing that happened in every match uh, while I was watching because it was very important to me that the descriptions of the matches matched up with the actuality so people could go and watch the matches and think, oh, he actually did describe that as it was in reality. But And like I, the pace was that slow. I didn't even really have to like pause the matches to write things down at any point. I could just do it along. I was like, OK, there's a little bit of downtime here. I'll sort of type up what's just happened. This was one thing I actually wanted to ask you about because you told me about this before about with these sort of matches the problem is is that it can be a bit repetitive and that you'd use some sort of like narrative devices like I remember you mentioned about uh, like from the perspective of somebody in the crowd yeah that's like right that. yeah. yeah I just wanted you to discuss how how you came about that and the challenges you had and like for example writing for someone. Um, and the, the Celtic part restricted view seats watching Ricky Dorsa versus Lefez. Like, yeah. How how did you find that? Well, I think the I think there's sort of two concerns I had really with describing the matches, and I'll get to that one in a second. But the first one was also um, I'm writing for um, an audience which might not necessarily know very much about wrestling at all let alone uh, Ricky Dozan. Um, and so, I mean, basically the, the setup of the novel is really, this is the way I got around sort of um, having to sort of communicate this wrestling knowledge. The setup of the novel is basically that uh, my protagonist, Michiaki Yamada, um, is a 71-year-old man. He's got his grandkids over. He's having to um, sort of babysit them during the school holidays because both the parents are at their sort of high-powered corporate jobs. And he doesn't really sort of understand his grandkids. He doesn't have this connection with them uh, particularly. And uh, basically, two of them are had a bit of a scrap, but he's sort of lost his rag and said some rather intemperate things to them. And then, I guess, partially by way of an apology and partially just to sort of keep them quiet, he starts telling this story uh, about sort of about the Rikidozan phenomenon and about his own part in it. And um, and so that's how I get around. It's like, okay, so he's going to have to need to tell his grandkids these are the rules of wrestling. This is what it's all about. And so that's how you can sort of go in cold with it. Um, but in terms of how describing the moves, like um, that was quite a difficulty because like you won't find the word suplex anywhere in the novel. Like um, uh, because basically I if I write it down on my notes, I would say, OK, it's a it's a rolling reverse cradle. You know, the one that Minami Toyota was famous for doing and uh, latterly uh, Koto Suzuki and uh, Yuka Sakazaki and uh, a whole host of people. Um, but I, I can't just say and then Ricky Dozan did a reverse rolling cradle. I'd have to think to myself and go, OK, what is happening here? Like, say, similarly with describing the figure four leg lock, which was the destroyer's finisher. And I was thinking. Okay, so what? Where were the? How are the legs crossed over each other? Like which goes over the other? And you'd, you'd have to, to describe all that. So that was kind of um, a bit of a difficulty that I had to surmount. Uh, the other one, like you say, how to make the matches, the match descriptions, quite different from each other. And so the first one is basically what happened is um, 
we sort of go in with the uh, the story that uh, Michiaki is telling. Um, and he says, right, I was 13 and Richard Erzan was about to challenge Luthers for the World Heavyweight Championship in Tokyo. And so they're basically about sort of the hubbub in the schoolyard about it and the excitement. And then he resigns himself to the fact he's going to have to read about it in the papers and then finds that his dad has spent rather a lot of money on a new television set so that they can watch it in the comfort of their own home. And so basically the first one's about them watching it on the telly. And that's a fairly standard description. And then basically... Uh, Michaki and his sister come up with a plan to pester their parents into taking them to the rematch that's taking place in Osaka where the grandparents live, finds out that uh, the dad has already beaten them to it and bought the tickets and uh, they have quite a crap view and so basically Michaki's sister has is monopolising the binoculars so she can see what's going on <laughs> So, but, yeah, and he's like, well, I'm not going to snatch him off her, obviously. Uh, so he's trying to, so we can see the big moves, like the flying shoulder tackles and the drop kicks and all the rest of it. But as far as, like, if he sees Luthez uh, going for a backdrop, he can't really see what Ricky Dozan is doing to try and stop it. All he's going on uh, is the crowd reaction. He can't really see the dirty tactics that Thez is doing, the closed fist punches and so on. But because the first few rows are booing, he's like, okay, something must have happened. So that kind of uh, creates a bit of variety. And then when you go on to um, the Blassie match, so basically what happens is that um, this isn't really a plot spoiler, but I'll give you sort of the skeleton of it. This is in the blurb. So, you know, um, you know, uh, what happens is that Michiaki wins a contest that is set up by a newspaper, basically to have a six-month internship, which is basically a bollocks non-job. He's like sort of stapling and filing and stuff. Yeah, so it's, yeah, it's basically yeah. a publicity stunt on the part of the promotion. And then someone found out that he's good at speaking English and says, well, do you want to do a bit of work sort of uh, help, helping out with the foreign wrestlers, like liaising with them when they come over and stuff like that? And so gradually works his way up in the organisation until he's Ricky Dozan's personal translator. And one of the things he has, like, a real crisis um, mentally when he finds out quite early on in his tenure there that wrestling is a work. Yeah. And uh, so basically what happens when he comes, by the time he gets to the uh, Freddie Blassie match, he co- he, de- he comes to deal with it and Ricky Dozan tells him, yes, it is a work, but we're doing it for a good reason. We're trying to channel these nationalist energies that still exist after the war into something benign so people can feel like they're sort of getting the country's getting its own back on america without anyone actually having to die you know uh so by the time of the blasting match he is watching it with a different viewpoint he is like seeing the way in which ricardo's and times his comebacks to coincide with the point at which the crowd's hope in him is maybe sagging a bit and coincidentally, he's getting very spooked when uh, Rickardo's and does the blade job. And he's thinking, wow, is Blassie really a wild animal? Like, has he got into business for himself? Because I haven't heard of any sort of uh, blood happening in wrestling. That doesn't happen. But he's there with uh, a uh, a girl who he's on a date with who doesn't know that it's uh, it's a work. So he's trying to having to sort of keep that on the down low. So basically what I've done is try to describe all of the matches uh, in a sort of different way. Uh, just so, and the last one is him just realizing that Ricardo and is a bit out of it while uh, wrestling the destroyer and becoming all concerned in that. So yeah, it's it's about um, it's about finding variety amongst the uh, sort of repetitiveness of the wrestling style. I would say. Yeah, yeah, no, absolutely, and like, uh, yeah, I'm, I'm very interested in getting into, especially the one with the um, you know, the the. The, the child what uh watching the in in the the arena because it does kind of with those sort of things it's not I mean the, the, one of the things and especially with like Ricky Dozan and stuff like that is again you say about the big hype and the you know, skill playground and stuff like that it's not necessarily just about the wrestling match itself it's about the atmosphere around it yeah. it's like yeah. it, it's like when you go to your first football game as a kid 
how that feels and stuff like that. And you always remember that sort of atmosphere. Even you could go see like a terrible like nil nil draw or something like that. But you always remember going in and wait, wait, you know who who it was against and stuff like that. These are all kind of things that you remember. And it, I'm really interested in finding out how you, you tackled those sort of things and sort of translated that, so to speak. Yeah, yeah. absolutely. Absolutely. So I was kind of yeah. It's the same. Same with wrestling, really. Like I remember, I took some friends to an ICW match who were all like posh private school lads who'd never like certainly not been to a venue like the kind that ICW run before, and they'd not been to the wrestling. And they, the match they all liked the most was um, Shah Samuels versus Wolfgang, which actually I don't think was technically the best match on the card, but it had this really fun atmosphere because it was round about the time of the um, of the Scottish independence referendum was coming up, yeah. and so yeah. Shah Samuels, being the only English wrestler on the card, was getting absolutely pelters from the crowd and uh, so that's what made it really fun it wasn't like an amazing match but like um even though those two guys are pretty good that happened as well um it was Shas Hamlet again it was against Grado at the Battlelands and the Battlelands is a very mythical venue in Glasgow yeah it's yeah universally regarded as the best one it's it's a shithole but it's our shithole so to speak and uh it's kind of it's an iconic venue. It is like our our um Budokan, so to speak, with these sort of things. And um, so for them to be there and Grado again and then of course he's against like Sha Samuels and like the the atmosphere is like nothing I've ever, ever seen uh, at any other match. And it is it's just that. It wasn't even a particularly amazing match. It, it was just executed so well. And again, similar to like Ricky Dozan, you know, timing his comebacks and stuff like that. And, and the, the book had been able to tell those sort of things just like in that match, it, it was a case of they, they absolutely had the, the crowd in the palm of their hand and could just make them move with every ebb and flow and stuff like that. And yeah, absolutely. And it, it, it's really good to, um, you know, like that, it, it, it I, I, that's that's one thing that I think people lose a lot in like wrestling and stuff, especially in video and stuff like that. That is a, an integral part of the, the reason why people watch wrestling. So even if you're somebody reading this book who isn't a wrestling fan, those are the sort of things that can make you sort of rationalise it and understand, well, this is why people watch it. Yeah, absolutely. That's what I wanted to communicate with this novel because I don't think it's enough to like you know the, the the fact that it was japan versus america explains the phenomenon's popularity to an extent but it doesn't tell the full story and like for example you know you didn't have this sort of um rivalry developing like any other sport and you know, part of it is because wrestling provides this real communal experience you know it wasn't just about um it was japan versus america it was everyone uniting to cheer on their hero and that was the and that was the uh the main thing you know it was one of the that and the godzilla films were the real ways in which people sort of worked around the trauma of losing the war without actually confronting it directly um and uh, yeah with with regard to the atmosphere i think that's really important um the 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 second thes match the one that they go to and like have the crap view um that's more about i guess the communal belonging the real fervor about uh, everyone being so convinced that okay well rickardozan battered thes in the first match and it was a draw so this time he's definitely going to win it and it's about sort of those hopes building up and eventually having them dashed and in uh, conversely with regards to the blassi match not only do we have uh, michiaki uh, knowing now it's a work, but also the atmosphere around the match, he begins to actually get quite scared by it because, like, the sheer hatred that the crowd have towards Blassie, and he begins to think, is is it good that we're whipping up these passions in people? Like, have have we finally gone too far with the violence? So, yeah, absolutely, I think. And also, actually, later in the 
There are, again, like I said, there's flash forwards to other periods in wrestling history that I think um, inform the narrative. And there's a there's a flash forward to it's the um, it's the Chikis and the guy versus Dump Matsumoto hair versus hair match. Oh yeah, yeah. Because yeah, a, a, very, a very emotionally charged. That is very, uh, very atmosphere about the violence going too far and stuff like that. Oh yeah. With those sort of hair matches, yeah, that they're very uncomfortable to watch. They, so, yeah, they you, genuinely are, and like I, I, I mean, I, I couldn't do a novel about Japanese wrestling um, without mentioning Japanese women's wrestling. Yeah. Uh, I didn't want to do it in a, in a sort of tokenistic way, but it was about trying to find ways to um, sort of convey its its popularity and its meaning to people, uh, while at the same time, you know, the, the period that the novel spans, uh, most of the narrative is between 1957 and 1963, uh, women's wrestling had really been relegated to sort of, um, I guess there's maybe a sort of sideshow act. There still were female wrestlers in Japan, but they were playing like nightclubs and stuff like that. It was very, very small scale, certainly compared to the... Uh, Mildred Burke tour in 1954 and compared to uh, what AJW would become that was established mm. in 1968 out of like a sort of amalgamation of the smaller women's promotions but what I really wanted to do was to have this flash forward and basically what the flash forward is is the what wrestling would become in Japan after Rikki Dozan was gone so what yeah. you had is the foundation of All Japan and New Japan uh, you had uh, Barber's Funeral you had uh, the famous Sumo Hall riot in uh, 1988 when Vader beat Inoki. Yeah. And what you also had was the um the Dumbatsumoto Chickas of the Gaia match. And I wanted to put that in there uh just because I think it's a um not quite apart from its meaning as uh, women's wrestling specifically, it's also showing how far wrestling has come both in terms of the brutality and also in terms of the style, like the costumes and the spectacle of it all. And yep. also I really wanted to convey by describing the atmosphere just what it would have meant to young women in the audience. Uh, after all, the it was very, very heavily female dominated, the um, uh, the audiences in the way that you certainly don't get at, say, stardom nowadays. No, no <laughs> to say yeah. To say the least. And so I wanted to... So okay, what is it? What does it mean to young women in Japan at that time to have these female role models uh, for for them? People like Chikis and Nagaya, who's really like quite an ordinary looking person in terms of her demeanor before the match. Her costume isn't particularly fancy, but when she gets going, she can do things that make her seem superhuman and make the audience believe that okay, if I'm an ordinary person like this, I can do that as well. So yeah, atmosphere absolutely is is very key. Uh, not just to um, I guess making it exciting for people reading uh, the descriptions of, of the matches, not having it just be a uh, bold list of uh, of moves like you get in you know, certain internet recaps, uh, but yeah. al also to convey exactly why wrestling became such a big deal. Yeah, absolutely. We do have a bunch of questions uh, from the Twitter uh, hive mind. Yeah, um, yeah, yeah. Go for, go for it if you want. Lay it on me, yeah. I've got time not doing anything else on a Sunday evening. <laughs> Um, at Sarah Parkin 1, uh, what would Ricky Dozan have thought about the pedestrianisation of Norwich City Centre? <laughs> Fuck's sake. I knew I knew I was going to get that. That is like the the ultimate like troll question in terms of British Q&As. Like, if you've ever seen that um, Q&A Jimmy Havoc did for Progress, where he was in character, which is still the best thing they've ever done. The first, I think, two of the earliest questions you get asked are, what do you think about the pedestrianisation of Norwich City Centre and will there ever be a boy born who can swim faster than a shark? <laughs> 
uh, Ricky Dozan, um, in an attempt to give this uh, question a serious answer, certainly more than it perhaps merits, um, and in a way to sort of bring it round, um, Ricky Dozan probably wouldn't have been in favour of it because um, he was a very wealthy man uh, because of wrestling with quite a lot of business interests. I think that he would have thought that traders really need access to many of his nightclubs. And um, <laughs> so, yeah. <laughs> Uh, thank, thank, okay. thank you, thank you, thank you for that, Sarah. No, Sarah does have another question. Um, oh, more good. importantly, uh, yeah. what were the sources you found most useful for piecing together Ricky Dozan's life? Are any of them even close to reliable Ooh. in quotes? Um, wow. Okay, so that's well, that's quite quite a big question. Um, so while well, I've mentioned before about the what sources I didn't have access to, i.e., this uh, huge uh, biography of uh, Ricky Dozan that's only available in Japanese and hasn't been translated. Um, the... Did you have? Did did? Oh, be honest. Did did you think of taking up Japanese to try and read it not in the slightest <laughs> like I no I, I I didn't because I was like okay Japanese is a notoriously difficult language I mean it's taken me it's taken me four years to write the bloody book as it is um and also like I don't know I have people I also have people ask me when I was um talking about like uh, I'm writing a novel set in Japan it's like oh you're gonna go to Japan for research firstly as if I've got the money to do that and uh, yeah. and secondly you know um, Hilary Mantel didn't go to Tudor England for research for Wolf Hall, and yeah, that did all right. Um, but in, in answer to in answer to the question, um, the main uh, resources I used in terms of um, firstly the Observer, from which I pieced together quite a lot of the information about his matches. Um, there's also actually a film. Um, uh, that was uh, brought out in 2004 called Ricky Dozan, a hero extraordinaire. It was a Korean film, um, um, which you can you can get a subtitled uh, version in both uh, English and I think English, Korean and Japanese. And um, you no, know, it's got Korean subtitles because it's filmed in Japanese. But the guy playing Ricky Dozan is a Korean, and it's got quite a lot of well-known wrestlers uh, at the time. Rick Steiner and Bart Gunner in it. Amazing. Like uh, Bart Gunn's one of the Sharp Brothers, I think. Um, uh, Asuma Fuji, the um, sumo yokozuna turned professional wrestler, is played by Shinya Hashimoto, uh, presumably the only wrestler they could get of comparable girth. Um, uh, Junaki Yama's in it. Uh, Tionobori's in it. Uh, sorry, not Tionobori. Um, Tionobori, the old wrestler, is played by uh, Mohamed Yone. And right, uh, yeah. yeah, yeah, yeah. So there's quite a lot of um, um, the <laughs> the best one is uh, Harold Sakata, who um, was a pro wrestler and you might know as the man who played Odd Job in Goldfinger. He's the yeah. guy who got Ricky Dozan into wrestling. He was played by Keiji Muto in the film. Now there is a um, physical resemblance, but the funny thing is that Harold Sakata, while of Japanese descent, was actually an American born in Hawaii, and Keiji Muto has quite a noticeable Japanese accent. <laughs> so he's sort of playing this character in the film. It's, it's quite good. It's a good film. I'd recommend it. Um, the other um, um, there was I can't remember the name of the article, but there was an academic paper by a guy called Yoshikuni Igarashi, which was about the Rikidozan phenomenon, and that was a um, really useful source for um, stuff to do with maybe the years that don't get talked about so much uh, when people discuss Rikidozan. For example, the years between 1954 and 1957, you know, between the Sharp Brothers match, the Kimura Double Cross, and the uh, and the Luthers matches, and similarly, you know, 1959, 1960, etc. That was particularly useful in um, for stuff about Rikidozan's relationship with Asuma Fuji and how basically one of his financial backers didn't wanted Asuma Fuji to be the ace of the company, and Rikidozan, Rikidozan sort of subtly, in ways that the book gets into, made it so this didn't happen. Um, 
One of the most useful books, I bought this for like a penny plus postage of Amazon, is a book called uh, Tokyo Underworld by Robert Whiting, uh, which is, is not a book about Rick and Ozan, but it does crop up because the book is about a bloke called Nick Zapetti, who was a Italian-American mobster from, uh, I think, from one of the famous five New York uh, crime families, who uh, he, I think he ended up serving in the uh, the army during the war, and he moved to Tokyo um, after the war, and he is the person who is uh, credited with the introduction of Western-style mafia, organisational, and you know, other things, techniques, into Japan. And um, Zapetti was one of Rikido's and uh, financial backers, and uh, he was also a conduit uh, between Rikidozan and some completely legitimate businessmen uh, from a, a Yakuza clan called the Tosei Kai, which was um, made up of Korean immigrants to Japan. And they used to um, have their meetings in uh, Nick Zapetti's Italian restaurant called Nicola's, which, as well as being a mob hangout, was actually a legit um, attraction. Like all of the celebrities used to go there, like um, anyone over from America, they would go there, like the Rat Pack, uh, Ava Gardner, John Wayne, you know, like real big superstars out of that and um, of that ilk uh, going out for Italian food became a big craze. Like the. Is it, was this like the, the 50s American celebrity version of the Roberta State <laughs> No, it, like, ge- it genuinely was. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah, everyone were like the Crown Prince Akihito, as he was then, like went to uh, Roberta, went to. Uh, Nicholas and was it's still there actually the restaurant it's been taken over by new management apparently the pizza's really shit but I, I probably would still go um just to do it anyway this in this book it's about Nick Zapetti and what he got up to in um Japan you know Yakuza stuff diamond robberies like all the rest of it but um there's stuff in there about Rikido's and own ties with the Tosei Kai and various uh Yakuza functions that it is actually, it's actually quite an interesting end note to the book about how uh, Robert Whiting heard about Mikadoza and so you've heard how I heard about him but uh, Robert Whiting lived in an apartment when he was over he was doing a year abroad as a student in Tokyo and uh, he ended up uh, living in an apartment that um, Rikidozan's widow was his landlady and it had right, been okay. one of, it had been one of the so-called Ricky apartments and uh, so it, it had been property that Ricardo's had owned and that had passed to his wife. And uh, even better, um, John Barber lived just upstairs. Amazing. Because uh, he was too tall for the um, accommodation at the dojo, which is where the rest of the trainees used to live. <laughs> um, and so he had his own flat in a Ricky apartment. And apparently Robert Whiting would just hear him practicing bumps, like occasionally. <laughs> and besides of Giant Barber, you would really hear it. it was like, yeah, you really would. Just shouting, Barber sound, I'm trying to sleep. It's one in the morning. <laughs> um, I mean... I, I I mean I, I live on a um a four in the block house and the people above like uh, my old neighbour we used to hear when they well, he would take his slippers off at night put them on the floor you'd hear a big fud so I can't imagine having giant Baba practice bumps in the floor how that would have sounded <laughs> I know Jesus it's ridiculous Christ. and uh, the other book I want to talk about and it's I've talked to you about this book uh, quite a lot and it is a book called uh, I Am a Korean the story of the world professional wrestling champion Ricky Dozan it's by a guy called Ho In Lee. It was published in Pyongyang in 1989, and uh, uh, fortuitously, um, it's actually published in English, so I was able to wow. read it. And uh, so I, I bought a copy um, off, I, off a guy in, uh, I bought it off eBay from a guy in Beijing, which is good I bought it um, secondhand, because presumably I'm not on uh, some sort of government watch list. As you can imagine, if I just bought it direct from, there's a website called North Korea Books or something like that, and it's just, it's see, just that, yeah. and then, like, the collected speeches of Kim Il-sung, Volume 6, <laughs> stuff like that, or, like, the the, the thousand principles of Juche ideology and uh, stuff of that ilk. And basically what this is is a sort of... Toilet fi- books. Yeah, yeah, yeah. This is actually... Um, 
I can probably say um, probably feel safe in saying this is a uh, fictionalized biography of Ricard Ozan because if the book's to be believed, it's a it's amazing his uh, his racial origin became uh, you know was such a secret for so long because like if the book's to be believed, he wouldn't stop talking about how he does everything for the fatherland and eternal leader Kim Il Sung and um, all that sort of stuff. Weirdly enough, actually, although it's a it is like presumably. Um, workers' party-sponsored North Korean government propaganda. Um, it, uh, it the the information about Rikido's and uh, matches and like the dates and the results and that is actually really accurate. Like it's clearly the clear the guy did his research. It's just interspersed with this is this conspiracy theory about Richard Ozam uh, was killed by the reactionary Japanese and the American imperialist dogs uh, because they didn't like the fact that he was the best uh, wrestler in the world. Weirdly enough, actually, though, like I have still treated this as a historical source. And the reason is, firstly, I'm not a historian. I'm not writing a biography. It's a novel. I can do what I want. And uh, secondly, um, as for like spoiler alert again, so wind forward a few minutes if you don't want to hear this uh okay Ricardo Ozan uh was you know killed in the gangland murder by a guy called Katsuji Murata and um there's quite a lot of theories swirling around as to why he did it whether it was revenge for being chucked out of a nightclub six months prior or whether it was uh, he was paid off by um a rival Yakuza clan to the Tose Kai or whether it was just Ricardo Ozan started a fight with him in the gents and uh, sort of um Murata shanked him and um so you've got all these um you got all these theories, and I was like, "Why not add the North Korean like uh, one into there? Like, yeah, why you know, not? Why not? In in this, it's it's kind of there's a book called um, uh, A Case of Exploding Mangoes by a guy called uh, Mohammed Hanif. It's a Pakistani novel, and it's about the plane crash that killed the military dictator Zia Hak in 1988. And it does a sort of similar thing. It's um, it's got all these theories, which range from a CIA CIA plot to mechanical failure to a curse to like um, the uh, sort of trends in the mango season which is what the title of the novel comes from and I, yeah i've sort of like yeah why 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 um why zero in on one explanation to Ricard, for Ricardo Ozan's death because you know it's still very murky and you can make things very much more interesting by bringing in this stuff so yeah why not um treat uh, this north korean book as a historical source it's more than it probably deserves but uh... I mean, yeah um, amazingly that it reminds me um i i used to be in a, a fantasy wrestling league doing like fantasy wrestling Oh yeah, yeah, e fedding. I've heard about this. Yeah, yeah right, yeah, e fedding, yeah. and we uh, it works. The the basis it was on like uh, twenty or twenty five years in the past. So like it would be today, twenty five years ago or whatever. Yeah. And it got to, I think it got to the point of collision in Korea, <laughs> uh, and I I mooted I wanted to do a collision in Korea event, and I was going to have basically how Ricky Dozan is pers- portrayed in that book. As like a mass jobber who would be like this Hulk Hogan figure of the power of Jushin, like taking out like Lex Luger or something like that, and I and then people but uh, people actually boycotted it and says I'm not going to be involved in this event due to political reasons, <laughs> and I'm like it, it's me writing just some stupid like North Korean ma- like Cap- Captain New Japan. And a bit, no, well, it, it's it. it's like have you have you ever seen uh, the Iron Sheik versus the Mighty Maccabee? <laughs> I think many years ago. <laughs> yeah, yeah, it's the one that Iron Sheik did. A was like the heel at a show at a Jewish community center, and he's he's um like his opponent is this like local wrestler with a mask with the Star of David on it. Like it, <laughs> it absolutely rules. <laughs> it's so good. Also, I'm not going to mention this, uh, any of the words from it on the podcast because it's horrendous. But um, uh, Steve Carino's story about the promo that Iron Sheik cut. Uh, oh. Backstage for the pre-tape, oh, no. yeah, you can you can imagine the sort of uh, uh, the sort of thing. Yeah, that I mean that's the that's the other thing about um, uh, there was a 
good article in Slate a few years ago. It was about a guy who was a wrestling fan. And he was at an airport in Pyongyang. He'd been to North Korea and he saw this bottle of wine with Ricardo Ozan's face on it. And he was like, what's this about now? And this was how he realised that once the North Korean government found out that Ricardo Ozan was born in Korea, he became like this legit, like, um, he became as big a national hero in North Korea, arguably, as he was in Japan. So, yeah, that, that's that's why I've, I've uh, so, yeah, this book is uh, Wheels Within Wheels. Yeah, to answer the question, there's probably other historical sources I've forgot, um, certainly the... Um, uh, wrestlers biographies in terms of their reliability that is almost beside the point i guess yeah <laughs> um so we'll move on to the next question here um so let's see um we've got at brad a bad brain girl good name uh yes i have a question why have you done this <laughs> it's Perfectly a le- valid it's Perfectly a legit valid. question in fairness um I'm I'm not trying to I don't want to get into like real pretentious territory. I don't want to be like uh Arundhati Roy talking about how her characters tell her to like what's going to happen to them and uh, stuff like that. because uh, that's like deeply weird. But um uh, You're gonna turn into Omar Sharif and be, like release a series of PC bridge games. <laughs> <laughs> the thing is Arundhati Roy, by the way, I'm uh, like a, a big fan of hers. But um uh yeah, basically why did I do this? Um I always choose to start creative writing at the worst possible time. Like I, the, the the novel I wrote when I was seventeen, eighteen, I started in the middle of like revision for my final A level exams. <laughs> so it's like you know quite important stuff, the stuff that's going to dictate whether you get into your first choice university or not. You know things of that ilk. Um, this one I started writing when I was like months out from finishing my PhD. Um, so it's kind of like when you have an idea in your head and um, you there's some ideas I have for novels and think. Okay, I'm not sure about this. I don't know if I can make that fly. And then there's this one which I had, and it was like, yeah, actually, I can. Um, I probably got the germ of an idea. And uh, other other things like why did I decide to do this? Is I was a school teacher for about a month and then jacked it in because like who needs the hassle? If I and yeah. then suddenly I was like, oh wow, all this free time I was envisioning not to have because I have my nose to the grindstone, you know, marking like 25 exam scripts of these little scrotes. Um, suddenly I've got <laughs> suddenly I've got this time back, and I was like, how, ma- how many a uh, career? How many dreams did you dash in your month? Of like just like undermarking people's nabs and getting them fucking. <laughs> they have to go to University of Lincoln uh, because hey, of hey, you, it, George. Hey, it's, hey, it's an up and comer. And yeah, university. Yeah, so basically, I was just like, okay, well, this novel I started, like, and I've written like maybe fifty thousand words of. It's like, hey, shit! Suddenly, I can finish it. Um, and yeah, so that was that was the reason. It's basically like, um, okay, I've, I want a project, and um, you know, I'm used to doing writing uh you know you i i did writing full-time for three years which is pretty much what a phd is it if you're not writing you're researching writing or you're speaking about your writing and stuff like that and suddenly you're just like okay well i could get either i could get really hench at um like um you know wolfenstein or <laughs> something like yeah, that yeah, yeah. or I, or i could get get my ass into gear and uh finally finish this thing because otherwise it's just gonna be uh hanging over me that's the problem like once you start things and you know they've got the potential to be something that you know people might want to read. Then it's oh well, fine, I've got to finish this now. So yeah, that's basically uh, the reason. Fair enough. Yeah, very good. Uh, let's see. So our next question is um, from at Ash versus. Um, will there be an audiobook version? If there was, who would be your dream narrator? Ooh. Um, 
the answer is uh, almost certainly not. Um, unless I could get my, if basically if uh, there is an aud audible uh, a version on Audible or something like that, it will be me reading it, and it probably won't be very good because like I have been in two plays in my life. Uh, neither weirdly enough, one of them was a Midsummer Night's Dream, but I've been in two plays in my life. You know, I am no um, I am no thespian. Um, so yeah, probably not. Um, I do have a friend who's a professional actor anyway, who like um, if I paid him enough money and uh, sort of. <laughs> George, <laughs> you do know that I would have to do your audiobook version, and no one under no one would understand a fucking word of it. <laughs> oh yeah, that's true. I, I think that would be the that probably be the best way to um, maybe prevent any clamour for it. Um, uh, in terms of my dream narrator. Um, I don't know. I could say a really. Um, I, I know. Say, like, I know who my dream narrator. Oh, okay. okay go on. You do yours. It's fairly obvious. You could probably take a guess. Oh, uh, it's not Bob Sapp, is it? No, no, no. It's even even more on brand for the Pure Free podcast. He did bumps yep. uh, on on the floor. Yo, Gianjo. Uh, Giant Baba. Oh, oh God, narrator. yes. And if we, oh, if we, uh, and if we couldn't get, if we couldn't get in, we just get Joey Adams. <laughs> or just get, or just get a voice actor to overdub him. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That's how it used to be back in the day. Um, uh, now, I would say, short of any troll answers, like uh, I know, um, you ever seen that video of Bobcat Goldthwait sing, uh, reading Fifty Shades of Grey? Yes, yes. Uh, yeah. That's uh, Tommy Akihonma. He'd be my choice. Um, that's that's really good. <laughs> Um, I think it would have to be because um, my narrator is um, uh, 71 years old um, when like at the time of the frame narrative. So it would have to be an older actor. Um, I don't uh, I don't I don't I, don't, I was going to say George Takei and then I thought that sounds a bit racist. But like I, I genuinely think that like I don't think you'd be very good. For I think George Takei would be good. Yeah. Or yeah. like um, I think Ian McKellen will probably seem to sort of entry level, uh, entry level answer. But like, I generally think Ian McKellen's a really good actor. I yeah. probably have. Oh, oh, actually no. Um, uh, Derek Jacobi. Derek. Well, you could. Yeah. Um, you could um, re uh, reform the the duo from uh, Panned ITV gay sitcom Vicious. Did you ever watch this? Program? Oh God, no! It sounded bad. Like uh, it was bad. But um, how do you make something that shite with Derek Jacobi and Ian McKellen? Like. Um, Oh, actually this kind of reminds me of like I, I don't know why I took my mum to see this but I went to see Waiting for Godot in uh, in London back when uh, Vladimir and Estrogen were played by uh, Patrick Stewart and Ian McKellen and I was like this is going to be great it's just Patrick Stewart and Ian McKellen like together on stage pretty much for the whole play and occasionally Simon Callow turns up but like um, and then I saw I could and I found out about this play I saw a press release about it. No, it actually, no, it was a story on the BBC website. And it said, uh, um, Patrick Stewart and Ian McKellen appearing together for the first time since X-Men 3 The Last Stand. <laughs> I was like, a bit different from uh, noted uh, Graps fan Samuel Beckett. Oh yeah, he he used to take Andre the Giant to school, didn't he? He did, because he, he, he had a truck and it was the only thing that could like, fit Andre the Giant into it. <laughs> So also, also former first-class cricketer uh, Samuel Beckett. I think he's the only Nobel laureate to have ever played professional cricket. Amazing, amazing. Um, um, I say, um, next question at Private Eyeball. If Rocky, if Ricky Dozan were a bean, what kind of bean would he be? Please don't ask this question. Ah, oh, fuck. Right, okay. Too, no, um, too, too, too late, buddy. I'm, 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 uh, I'm answering this shit. Um, if he had to be a bean, actually, I do, I do have an answer for this. Amazing. So I would say he would be a butter bean. Um, firstly, because he's not back on it in three seconds. Yeah, no, that, that's what I was going to be. I was going to say like he's 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 a big lad. So um, butter beans are big, uh, like as far as beans go. I'm not saying they're big in comparison to say a watermelon or something, but as far as beans go, butter beans are you know, the unit. And also, like butter bean, he likes shooting on people. 
So yeah, there you go. There you go. Hey, fuck you, I've answered your joke question for you. We're, we're just getting into joke joke questions. Here. Oh, no, no, bring, bring them on, I love it. <laughs> At Pete Hitchcock, are you planning any J.K. Rowling sequel characterization <laughs> patches later on Twitter? <laughs> Ricky Doza definitely voted for Better Together in the Scottish Independence <laughs> random George. Not, 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 not fucking better, George. No, not, not better at all. at all. No, Ricky Dozan would have obviously, like, continuously retweeted TERFs. Um, <laughs> <laughs> you know, I, um... I think, honestly, like, uh, sequel characterization. I mean, <laughs> if people want to ask me about, like, uh, uh, you know, I mean, obviously, like, the um, the uh, the historical characters, are, are, obviously, you can go and read about uh, Giant Barber or Kintaro Oki or Tio Nabori or whoever. Uh, if you want to ask me questions about, like, uh, my uh, fictional characters, you know, the ones I invented, Michiaki, yeah. the grandkids, his... Uh, Love interest. Actually, that's another thing. A, a lot of the characters are named for wrestlers, or they're like combinations. So, um, Michiaki's um, uh, girlfriend, then what, and then fiance, and then wife is called Etsuko Shimoda after uh, you know, the yeah. two members of LCO. Um, his his best mates at school. One of them is called Satoru Maeda. So obviously that's a uh, yeah, reference to the great yeah, superstar Rick's... wrestlers, ref, superstar wrestlers of the eighties. And one of them yeah. is called uh, Keiichi Murakawa, which is the shoot first name of uh, Jushin Liger. Mm-hmm. And the uh, shoot last name of another great mass wrestler, the great Sasuke. Um, oh, so basically, there's little Easter eggs uh, in there for um, for people. So basically, the characters that I invented, yeah, a lot of them do have um, names like this. This is another thing I was actually quite conscious of. I um, obviously I wanted people who don't know about wrestling to be able to read and enjoy the novel. I also wanted to leave some Easter eggs in there for like the real hardcore fans. So is, this like the, is that like that episode of New Tricks that had like the entire West Brom O one O two team? the three main guys are named after like a stand at the Hawthorns <laughs> that that's the thing was there for like three people like you know the entire the entire West Brom fan base um but uh now I'm still I'm still pissed them for second down more mate but yeah um there's certain easter eggs there um not just character names but also in terms of phrasing for example I talk about how um Rikidozan was pushed as a face in uh, in uh, LA and in Hawaii and basically you know it's after the war um and Japan is now an American ally so I've said that he is um the representative of a new Japan for a new world order so obviously that's a phrase that makes yeah, sense yeah. in that but obviously new Japan and new world order are wrestling things so yeah. actually my favorite easter egg I put in there is um there's a scene where um Michiaki gets called in to see the headmaster because the headmaster is basically this all-seeing entity, even though, like, you never see him. It was basically, like, my headmaster at school. Um, and uh, he's found out that uh, Michiaki is planning to leave school at 16 to take up this job with the JWA. And uh, so, and he talks about how he, like, does corporal punishment on the uh, on the children with this uh, cane that he's got. And uh, a lot of the words where he's just defined this to Michiaki are just taken verbatim from the uh, Yapapai Indian strap match promo. <laughs> <laughs> that that's one for the real heads. That one is. Um, oh. But in answer to your question, uh, unlike J.K. Rowling, I will not be claiming that there is a representation uh, in my novel that I, di- I that I wasn't courageous enough to actually put there in the first place. <laughs> oh, uh, there, there you go. Um, next up, at oysters eating, which member of the Up Up Girls would you say has the biggest Rickardozan energy? I mean, I'm familiar with this uh, at oysters earrings chap, and this is a very him question to ask. Um, but, uh, Literally, if you you know how you get those people that like read they get a computer to read like eight thousand like scripts of like Extreme Makeover Home Edition, yeah, and then they like they have to make an episode of Extreme Makeover Makeover Home Edition, 
and it comes out and it's all perfect. This would be this if you took all of um, Oyster Eating's um, tweets and fed them into a machine and asked them to come back with a question. This would be the question that would come back. Oh yeah, like um, I mean, I, I did actually because I had a sneak uh, sneaky look at the uh, the questions on Twitter uh, prior to this, uh, just to sort of uh, check I wasn't going to be flummoxed by uh, by anything. Um, and actually, we did get a reply from at Matt Seidel, uh, not the not the New Japan guy, uh, or ex New Japan guy, because yeah, of no, all, all the weeds he did. All the weeds. Um, Four twenty five. Believe <laughs> <laughs> Um, yeah. So uh, uh, Matt Seidel on Twitter um actually said uh, Raku, who's one of the uh, up up girl she's the one who she has a finisher called the uh the uh the good night express which is basically she just sits on her opponent and pretends to go to sleep and <laughs> that's her finisher never beaten anyone with it unsurprisingly um but um she actually did like visit rikido's grave <laughs> and tried to i don't know tried to imbue herself with uh some of his uh some of his energy that's another thing actually rikido's uh there is a rikido's grave in north korea Obviously, it's not got like his remains in it, but there is one in his uh, in his home village. Um, oh, like a, a, a vigil or something like that. Yeah. yeah, and I think there might be one in Pyongyang as well. Uh, but like the actual um, memorial site is in the Ikigami Honmonji Temple in Tokyo, and so you can go to it. And there's like a sort of bust of him looking very stern with his arms folded, and uh, and uh, people like uh, it used to be a really big tourist site. Um, I, don't, I don't think it still is because like they're sort of people who were big into Rikido's and sort of like died off eventually. Yeah. But yeah, you can, you can still uh, go to it and wrestlers do it's still. On the buses. Uh... Yeah, yeah, yeah. You know, if people are huge at it on the buses, but as they get older and older, that new generation of on the buses fans isn't coming through. No, absolutely. Uh, you know, um, you could say that's a entirely, uh, entirely um, uh, good development. <laughs> um, but yeah, I think there is that um, sort of uh, yeah, people do sort of. Um, yeah, people go to Rikido's and uh, grave like uh, wrestlers do. Still, it's just like Raku from the Up Up Girls was not particularly um, someone that uh, I uh, I expected to uh, do that. You know, I wouldn't expect it to be involved in. You know, when they have that um, thing every year at the um, at the Yasukuni Shrine. Yeah, yeah, and everyone does. Uh, everyone gets in there. You know, those massive sort of uh, grey get-ups with the big shoulder pads. Yeah. whose name I do know and it's completely slipping my mind at the time but it's always like the sort of it's like Muto and Satomura and Chikasa Nagayo and yeah. Tanahashi and uh, people like that I don't think there'd be any room for any of the uh, up-up girls um, um, that's actually another thing I kind of um, wanted to get into when I was sort of talking about the setup of the novel and didn't quite get the chance the um, the novel's relationship with uh, Japanese militarism and the Second World War so how so what I've talked about is is how wrestling was a way of working through the tra- trauma of losing the war. Um, I wouldn't want anyone to read the novel and think that it was like sympathetic to the uh, Japanese colonial empire, um, you know, in the nineteen thirties and nineteen forties, and that it anyway seeks to excuse uh, the uh, you know the heinous yeah exactly yeah, yeah. the sexual slavery, the uh, chemical weapons experiments, the vivisections, you know, you know all all of that like really awful shit that they did. Um, but what it is, what I'm trying to do is seeking to, um, I guess, depict uh, the, I guess, the national moment really in Japan. The the idea that they um, had had to adjust to the sort of uh, American mandated values of democracy and uh, civil rights, and the, the fact they were now an American ally, whereas before they had been uh, America's enemy, and um, and and basically Rikido's and rationale for the uh, staging these things because there was undoubtedly like still resentment of uh, America and a lot of it stemmed from the fact that um 
Japan, you know, Japan and Nazi Germany and uh, all of their allies, they were the ones that they had uh, tribunals for their leaders, executions, you know, and then Mossad went and got the rest of them back from Argentina, you know, um, Adolf Eichmann and uh, and all of those. Um you know, I, I and the, the thing was, it's like, OK, are we being punished because of the bad things we did in the war? Well, yes, on one hand, but at the same time, also being punished for losing the war again. Yes. But, you know, there was this current of uh, of dissent, I think. And actually, there was a guy called Judge Pal at the Tokyo Tribunal. He was an Indian judge and he wrote the dissenting opinion for the conviction of the uh, the war criminals like General Tojo and uh, uh, Admiral Yamamoto and all of those uh, all of those people. And again, I'm not saying that these people shouldn't have been convicted. They absolutely should. But what Judge Powell was saying is like, OK, how these people have been correctly punished for what they've done. But uh, what about the uh, the bombing of Dresden by uh, by uh, the UK? Uh, what a, what about the atomic bombs dropped on Hiroshima and Nagasaki by the Americans? I mean, the Soviet Union started the war in a pact with Hitler. Yeah, and then they got off scot free at the uh, at the end of it. For they they basically stood by while Europe was carved up uh, by the Nazis, leading to you know God knows how many deaths. I mean, even someone as right wing and nationalistic as uh, Peter Hitchens frequently writes about the Dresden bombings uh, under the command of uh, Arthur Harris being a war crime. And so, uh, so I've tried to sort of depict this sort of uh, this sort of dynamic where there's still these uh, undercurrents of uh, I guess of of humiliation, really. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. This sort of twin twin of guilt and humiliation. There were numerous um, uh, episodes of Harakiri after the war, uh, not just by political leaders, but by business leaders. Actually, if you want to read a novel that's quite good at dealing with that, I'd recommend uh, An Artist of the Floating World by Kazuo Ishiguro. That's set in the sort of immediate post-war as opposed to the sort of uh, later years that I do. So that's why the Yasukuni Shrine made me think of it, because everyone... Everyone in the UK gets really outraged when um, uh, when people like Japanese politicians do memorials for their armed forces. But like, you know, um, there's a lot of bad shit that the British Army did as well. And like, but if you try to mention that on like or like in like the two months leading up to Remembrance Day, then it's basically die ISIS scum. You know, <laughs> it's that sort of, uh, yeah, that exactly. sort of thing. <laughs> They accepted their defeat. I think that um, they might not have accepted, like, sort of, um, uh, you know, the the reality. I mean, they're still, the government's still not, they're still protesting the fact that a Japanese firm was ordered by the Korean government to pay compensation for yeah. its enslavement of Korean women during the war. So that stuff is very much still disputed by, uh, certainly within the LDP, which is the, um, hey, it's, it's like, a, there's a country with worse liberal Democrats than us. Yeah. Um, this is the uh, right wing party that's ruled Japan for most of the uh, of the post war era. But yeah, I think certainly in terms of accepting did, did, did its they, defeat, did they raise student fees as well? <laughs> they probably did the bastards. That's that's Arbe, that's Arbenomics. It's just quantitative easing and nine grand a year tuition fees. Um, <laughs> but, but yeah, I think they they certainly accepted their defeat and they accepted the uh, the guilt of it. But in terms of actually the sort of uh, finer lines uh, with regard to the Japanese military's conduct during the war, I think that's more up in the air. Mm-hmm. It has nothing to do with the book, but um, have you have you seen the uh, the last Godzilla film, Shin Godzilla? Oh, the the Japanese one. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Uh, no, I haven't actually. It's it's very very good. It's 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 more of a it's like the thick of it. If the thick <laughs> of it was like yeah, but the Japanese government and a Godzilla attack happened, so it's very comedic and stuff like that. But near the end of the film, the they, they, they basically have to um, consider the use of the atomic bomb to get rid of Godzilla. 
And they call obviously Godzilla is a bit of a, a oh, what's it, an allegory for like, yeah. nuclear war and stuff like that. So there is lots of stuff in that sort of film at the end about them about going. This is the, this was the greatest, you know, one of the worst things that's ever happened to our country. Like you know, the great humiliation and lots of people died. We vowed that this never happened, and now we've been brought to the point where we have to consider this, and like they have to try and solve it so that. Uh, this doesn't happen, but like it, it, the way they do it in the film, even though it is ostensibly quite a comic film, those sort of things and the way they touch on it was really, really good, and uh, it, I, I really enjoyed it. Um, there's, there's actually uh, I do I do touch on this in the in the uh, first frame narrative chapter in which Michiaki says to his uh, kids, "Is like, have you seen the old Godzilla films?" And they're like, "No." I like, I bet you've seen the new American one, haven't you? And they're like, "Yeah." And uh, yeah, but and this basically reflects my opinion on the. Uh, so I'm certainly not shy of putting some of my opinions in the mouth of the uh, of the narrator. Uh, <laughs> but um, and you know every author does this. They're lying if they say they don't. Um, but uh, I've, the reason the Godzilla films are good is not the 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 set pieces and like the big monster stomping thing. That's good. But like yeah. the reason they're good is the sort of dynamics around the monster attack, like the sort of political things and like you say the allegorical uh, nature of it. The idea that the audience exactly knows what this is me- meant to represent. Um, Does this mean that um like in like. 15, 20 years' time, we'll get a pastiche American version of this novel, and then they'll take the, the point completely out of context. Like, at the end of Pacific Rim, when he used a nuclear bomb to destroy the kaiju, and it just enraged me I, so much. I, I, I do like Pacific Rim, actually, but... Uh, it's a really I, good film, but I was just... Yeah, I, I know. Oh, actually, the um uh, this sort of symbolism is also present in Rikidozan, because um he was billed as being from Nagasaki. Now oh, that, right, that, yeah, that's yeah. actually where his adopted father was from. So he did live in Nagasaki. It wasn't just that he was symbolically built from there, but obviously um, his audience would have picked up on. Yeah, they would have picked up on that, of course. Yeah. Particularly if he was built as that in America as well. You can imagine that would have a lot of. Oh God! Have you have you ever like? Um, yeah, that that's something that fascinates me as well. Um, in fact, I very much hope there will be an episode of the podcast in the future on uh, Japanese wrestlers in the American territories. I think that'd be a, a good. So just a little thing to put in the ideas box. No, no pressure. Yeah, I, no I pressure. Like obviously, Daniel, if he wants to do that. Oh, brilliant. Uh, um, but well like um, the, have you ever you ever heard of uh, uh, Tojo Yamamoto? Yeah, yeah, Who was yeah. so his shtick? He he wasn't Japanese. He was a Hawaiian bloke pretending to be Japanese, and uh, he had taken the names of Tojo, who was the head of the Japanese army in the war, and Yamamoto, who was the head of the uh, either the navy or the air force. I can't remember. It might be the yeah, air force. Yeah. And he would he would do this shtick. He'd come out like weeping, and right. he would like say in this sort of broken English. He spoke English fluently, but like uh, obviously being Hawaiian, but like he was saying this broken English, saying, "Please, I I wish to make apology. I I wish to make apology on behalf of my nation for for, us, for yeah." But he's like, "I wish to I wish to make uh, apology on behalf of my nation for bombing Pearl Harbor. It was very wrong. I wish it had not happened. Please accept my, my uh, please give me your forgiveness." And the crowd would go, "Ah," oh, and he would say, "Like yes, I wish they had not bombed Pearl Harbor because I wish they had bombed." And then he'd like say the name of the town they were in. <laughs> that is the greatest heel shtick I've ever heard in my life. This is eerily uh, reminiscent of my dad, who for years claimed, and he still to this day says that the Nazis missed a trick when they missed Clyde Bank when they were bombing it. <laughs> <laughs> He's like such a shit to all of us and just flattened it to the ground. It's just uh, Uwe Rosler's <laughs> granddad uh, bombing, bombing Old Trafford, isn't it? <laughs> oh, man. Yeah. Bubblegum just coming out, going, I- I'm very sorry that Huey <laughs> Ross's granddad bombed a Stratford Inn. I wish he'd bombed, you know. Like... Old Tringham Silver Blades, I'm sorry. <laughs> <laughs> oh, 
I was thinking, like, what's the, what's the most shithouse Manchester venue I can think of? <laughs> Well, I mean, if we if we had any sort of cover that you weren't George, I think they kind of just <laughs> blew it there. No, no, mate, it's fine. I think I don't think they've caught on. You know, I, I, it's just a little airborne. It's still good. It's still good. Uh, Should've um, done the Rex Haberdasher voice, <laughs> <laughs> which I didn't invent. You didn't. You didn't invent at all. No, that was not, George. No, no, that was other George. So we have a couple more questions. Mm-hmm. Um, I, I I don't know if I should ask this one. I'm not going to lie. Um, <laughs> all right, all right. At, at Puritanical, what shade did you make Katsuchi Murata's piss? <laughs> okay, so just to explain why this was uh, asked. So again, spoiler, spoiler alert, if you don't want to... Don't, don't run over the results, look away now. Um, just uh, fast forward a couple of minutes into the future. Uh, so the man with Wicked Ozan's passing was... Uh, he was stabbed with uh, a knife by a guy called Katsuji Murata, who we've uh, mentioned before. He was the sort of possibly hired hand of the uh, reactionary Japanese and the American imperialist pig dogs, as uh, as Mr. Hoen Lee uh, so uh, illuminated us. So he, he really is a shit. Yeah. What what's happened was that uh, the, the knife blade was soaked in piss. And... Uh, it led to the stabbing led to Rikidozan developing uh, an infection called peritonitis, which was what uh, killed him. I'm, I'm sure all the booze and like drug abuse and all that stuff uh, didn't particularly uh, help. No. Uh, in response to at Puritanical, it may surprise you to know I have not mentioned the colour of Katsuji Murata's piss um, because uh, I have taken it as red. However, if I was to hazard a guess as to uh, what colour it would have been. I would imagine it would have been quite dark because he had been in a nightclub boozing and therefore would have taken on a lot of liquid. And uh, maybe it would Top have been... Couple of pints of McEwen's export and sweetheart style <laughs> and browned it up a bit. May, may have been uh, b- probably busting for a slash. Maybe that was the reason he was in that uh, bathroom with Wicked in the first place. Maybe it wasn't the uh, reactionary Japanese government or the Tosei Kai or any of those lads. Two questions left. So, um, at Graham, not Marty. Fantastic name, I love it. Um, although his sons are respected parts of AJPW, Old Japan, and Noah in different capacities, did the nature of his death and or dealings with the Yakuza have any effect on their respective careers? And what would Rikidozan think about Mitsuo's pencil tash? <laughs> okay, just to go to the second one, because I think this will be answered a lot quicker. Um, I think he would have been uh, repelled by it, as uh, all uh, right-thinking people would be, uh, particularly if he uh, came out of the womb with it. Uh, I think that would have been uh, uh, very disturbing. And uh, obviously, I don't, I don't think Ricky Dozan was uh, in his son's life very much on account of being dead. And also, uh, if, um, Mitsuo and uh, Yoshihiro, his other son, were from his first marriage. Um, and then they split up, and then he married... Um, a uh, woman called uh, Keiko Tanaka, who is the um, the woman that Robert Whiting uh, her house lives in. Keiko Tanaka is still alive, by the way. Uh, she uh, works in uh, she works in the New Japan shop, I think. Does she? Wow. Yeah, yeah, yeah. She does. Someone uh, someone I follow on Twitter had their photo taken with her. And it's like this is Ricky Dozan's wife. Yeah. So um, yeah. Um, so yeah. So Ricky Dozan had a couple of sons who were wrestlers. Um, Mitsuo and Yoshihiro. Yoshihiro is long since retired. He didn't really do that much. He was a um, I'm writing thinking he was a junior junior heavyweight in um, all Japan in the 80s. My biggest experience of him really is uh, uh, seeing him on the uh, draw sheet for the um, the Luthers Cup in uh, 1983, which was... Um, uh, Misawa got to the final of that and wrestled uh, Shiro Koshinaka. Sponsored uh, by Zenith Data Systems. <laughs> Shiro of R-Space Offense fame. And Yoshihiro Momoto competed in that tournament. I don't know if he won many matches. Uh, Mitsuro Momoto had more of a career. Uh, he's still wrestling now, unbelievably. He is so old. 
Like oh, he's, man. Yeah, he's pushing I, 70. Yeah, I mean, he, I mean he's up there. Um, yeah. he, he must have a bus pass. I mean, his son wrestles as well, uh, Chikawa, who uh, um, he, he makes Leona look like... Um, uh, well, this, this, this is going to be my question. In terms of, like, on the the scale of, like, you know, disappointing, uh, you know, family dynasties, Yeah. you know, the Momota uh, children, better or worse than Leona? Oh, Mitsuo is definitely better. Like, uh, on a scale of one to Hillary Ben in terms of fail sons, like, I, I think <laughs> that um, he definitely wouldn't be uh, too high up. I mean, he's he's still quite fun if you see him on shows now, like tagging with uh, tagging with his lad. Um, like, he, he's always on he's always on people's retirement shows or like on uh, Real Japan Pro Wrestling or like all of those um, Tokyo Gurantai, uh, you know, uh, things like that. He's um, always that sort of guy where if you have a have a big do or something like that and you don't expect him to turn up well you know that uncle that you don't ever expect to turn up and he's always there despite the fact that he lives in Staffordshire and can't drive yeah and so somehow always turns up that that's that's them I, th- I think in terms of uh how um the Yakuza affected the stuff affected their careers it's very hard to say it's kind of a bit of a chicken and egg situation like was it because of the the stigma of being the children of someone who it did emerge after his death was involved with all sorts of gangland stuff or was it because they just weren't particularly accomplished wrestlers or particularly charismatic or uh, or the rest of it um uh, it's it's very hard to say i think actually and it's actually very hard to say if there would have been that stigma associated with being Rikido's and son. Uh, in particular, the sort of Yakuza stuff, it came out uh, in the you know, weeks and months after his death. And pro wrestling got a very bad rap um, because of uh, because of that. Um, was this where, was it this be sort of like an embryonic version of the sponsors that you get now? Uh, yeah, yeah, it, it very much was. I mean, the, um, the mob um, uh, controlled all the merchandising of uh, mm. of the JWA back in the day that was actually um one of the theories as to why Rikidos and Dida was that Katsuji Murata's firm was uh, frozen out of the new contract it was divided up um across the ah. Tosei Kai across the Tosei Kai and two other uh, clans um uh, but basically wrestling got a bit big rap and what uh, business was really down for uh, most of the rest of the 60s and what really brought it back was uh, Giant Barber eventually becoming the top guy Giant Barber you know apparently in private as fond of a dirty joke as the next man but like uh, you know a very clean living uh, clean living austere religious man who yeah. he's, actually, he's actually a Mormon I don't know if you knew that he was uh, a convert to Mormonism when he was 15 uh, we're all Mormons though as in what as in oh. We are we are all baptized as Mormons. Is that is that what is that is that what's on those golden plates from the musical? Yeah. <laughs> um, I mean that's what I was told when I went for the for the initiation. <laughs> you might have got a different one to me. Um, yeah. But yeah, um, so uh, John Barber really that's sort of <laughs> going on crossing the desert. Um, yeah, John Barber sort of um, brought wrestling's popularity back, but. Um, and I think maybe sort of people began again to remember Ricky Dozan as the sort of the national wrestling hero and sort of didn't so much dwell on the sort of dodgy stuff in the same way that um, sort of the, the, the past is always rose tinted. Uh, like I remember once there was a survey of like the greatest New Japan matches of all time among the fan base. And um, like there were so many Anoki matches in there. Um, and like the number one was Inoki versus Muhammad Ali. <laughs> <laughs> which like at the time was a notorious fiasco but people uh, i guess a lot of people now remember it as like hey jim winanoki fought the world heavyweight boxing champion and, and like got a draw against him 
<laughs> so yeah. Um, yeah, it might be one of those things. Um, in terms of actually, there's uh, speaking about Mitsuo Momota and the Yakuza. There is one quite good story about him. Is so uh, Momota ended up defecting to Noah along with the vast majority of the all Japan roster in the year 2000, and. Uh, in 2009, he quit the company because he was passed over for the presidency after Misawa died in favour of Akira Tawe. Now, as to whether that was the right decision or not, I mean, look at some of the cards Akira Tawe booked in 2009 and then uh, shudder in revulsion. <laughs> but uh, I don't know if Momoto would have been any better, to be honest with you. I mean, True. 2009, Noah was a, you know, would have been hard to book something uh, good with the company in the state it was in at the time, you know. But um, basically, Momoto quit the company and then he wrote a tell-all book about the fact that Noah was uh, sort of a lot of its financial backers were completely legitimate businessmen. And uh, one of the uh, revelations in the book was that Haruka Eigen, um, who was on the Noah roster and had a sort of uh, um, committee job with them as well, I think he was on the board. Um, oh, yeah. yeah. It's like, like in the bowling club, you've got the 85 year old guy in the blazer who does nothing and he's just like got a, a role yeah. as like admin or something like that and does nothing. He's just there for like, you know, window yeah. dressing. Absolutely, yeah. but um, the book revealed that Haruka Aigun was a ranking member of the Yakuza. So it wasn't just like Tomoaki Homa where he was mates with some of them. Like, he was actually initiated into one of the Yakuza clans. Now, this is particularly extraordinary when you allow for the fact that Mitsuo Moto versus Haruka Aigun happened on so many shows. Like, um, often has been talked about on the podcast before that the uh, the opening match of Noah's first Tokyo Dome show was Momota versus Aigun, and it was just two 50-year-old guys having a dad fight. Um, but <laughs> But Momota had like this feud with Eigen for years and years and years, and he knew that this guy was in the Yakuza, and it was the Yakuza who, you know, killed his mm. father. So, like, I mean, clearly Momota, uh, Mitsuo Momota uh, wasn't willing to let it affect his career from, like, a sort of psychological or interpersonal standpoint as much as possible. Yeah. Um, but in, in answer to the question, uh, I don't know. Is that, is that someone you know asking the question, by the way? Like, personally? Yeah. Uh, it, no, I, I don't personally know him, though. I know he's from Glasgow. Because it's a guy with a Scottish football reference as a Twitter handle, and he's into the grap, so I just assumed you knew him. But uh... Yeah, no, no, no. Um, I think I think they just gravitate towards me. Um, uh, 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 fair. Okay, good. Well, it's nice to have a gravitates. Yeah, exactly. Um, and the final question, more of the most pertinent question, at Lonely Luchador, um, Ainsley, one of our favourite people, um, when can I buy the book? <laughs> That's a hell of a question. Um, uh, the answer. What, what a boy! He's doing a job for it. It really is. <laughs> I was going to say, but it, we, it's now organic. We can get this, uh, uh, this in uh, like uh, just, just at yeah. the end. It's like, oh yeah. By the way, um, you can buy it on Amazon.co.uk for the low low price of two pound forty nine for the Kindle edition, and you can also buy it for uh, fourteen ninety nine if you're one of these people who would like a, a, a print, printed book version. The print on demand in Poland and shipped to your door if you're um, one of the countries that they ship to, which is like you know most of the big most of the big lads. Um, in uh, uh, in like a matter of days. You don't have to have a Kindle um, in order to read it. You can get an app for your desktop, like an e-reader. And yeah. so you'll be able to uh, to do that. Um, you I'm probably a smartphone as well, can you? Uh, I think, yeah, there must be a Kindle app for the smartphone. I'm sure saying yeah, you can read it on your phone if you like. So there are there are ways and means. Uh, you know, it's not going to be me going down Ryman's and getting like a hundred of them spiral bound at uh, an expense of many hundreds of pounds. I'm going to get one for myself because I like to have a sort of uh, physical copy of the thing I made. So I've got my PhD thesis on the um, on the uh, on the shelf. I never want to see it again. But like oh, yeah, I, I've, uh, got, I've got my uh, I've got my dissertation. Uh, oh, oh yeah, yeah. Like, you never want to read them again. It's just it's nice to have them just as proof of something you've uh, you've accomplished. 
as well as um, in my experience, um, where if you don't get a copy and you leave the only copy in university and then the toaster catches fire and then they all get burnt, then, you know, that's your dissertation. <laughs> Just hypothetically so, um, speaking, of course, um, at the end of the day, like, it, it's not very much money but I'd like to earn a little bit from it. And also, I kind of think psychologically speaking, I like I want to sort of uh, say to myself that the thing I produced has monetary value. And, you know, we're all sort of, we're all cogs in the in the uh, late capitalist machine. But, uh, you know, it's kind of one of those sort of self-actualization things that is impressed upon us by a modernity. So, eh, what can oh, you do? Yeah, what can yeah. you do? Money, please. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Oh, no, I'm, I'm, the, I'm the absolute same with uh, all the, uh, the weird releases I do. I don't do it for the money, but... If anybody gives me money, I'm always absolutely delighted for it. So Yeah, thank you very much for having me on the show. It's nice to get the uh, word out. If, by the way, if anyone uh, with a podcast uh, is listening to this, like you want to have me on your show to uh, talk about this uh, this stuff, doesn't have to be the same questions, you know, but if you want to talk about the novel... Um... If you want to ask him what shade of piss uh, <laughs> he wrote, then, you know, you, you do you, Voices of Wrestling. That, that, is, the, uh, that is the pertinent question, isn't it? Yeah, exactly. Um, I'm just looking forward to like the military industrial suplex asking you if Ricky Dozan was a bean, what bean would he be? If, uh, no, it's been really nice to be on the show. Thank you for having me. It's been uh, nice to sort of uh, vent all these sort of uh, things that basically have been going around my mind, but obviously because they're part of like the work of actually like writing and creating, you can't put them in the novel. You can't show your card, so to speak. So yeah, it's been really good. Thank you very much. So yeah, thank you very much, George, for uh, for being on. Uh, it's been lovely having you. Um, and uh, just to remind all our listeners um, to check out ProWrestlingOnly.com to explore other podcasts along with match reviews, features and retrospectives, reviews of wrestling books, maybe this one, depending on how, how good you get a review. <laughs> um, I, I may get it revealed. Um, video games and matches, playlists, wrestler appearances in non-wrestling TV shows and movies and more. You can also join the conversation by signing up at the PWO forums. We've been online for over a decade and with over 2,000 registered members and an archive of over 4 million threads. Our message board is a vibrant community all its own. Whether you want to talk about a specific match in our match discussion archive, take a deep dive in the Microscope forum, or discuss more general topics from wrestling's past and present, check out all of this and more at www.prowrestlingonly.com. Um, as for us, uh, you can uh, catch us on Twitter at Puro Podcast. And if you want to uh, buy my music, I'm doing lots of weird um, experimental music at fastbuck.bandcamp.com. Uh, my project is called Abdullah Kobayashi. I have other projects. You can probably take a guess as to which ones are by me and which ones are by my weird pals. Um, you know, there, there's, a, there's a theme there. Uh, so I'll have a look at that. Any money you can chuck at it, thank you very much. If not, you can just listen to it. It's just there for, well, my own enjoyment, really. But if you want to try it, you can. So well as that, Daniel, um, our other cohort, who is currently away being in love. Um, uh, um, he uh, has a band camp, which is handloomlament.bandcamp.com. Um, uh, yeah, so that's hand as in a hand, loom as in a loom that you would uh, make clothes with. Does he make clothes in a loom, don't you? Yeah, like if you weave, like you're a weaver, yeah. Yeah, a weaver, yeah, yeah. Handloom and lament, as in, you know, I lament listening to this podcast. Um, Dotbandcamp.com, you try to listen to all his stuff. I believe that's all his stuff, so any money that you send to that will go to him. Um, And it will really help him out. Um, And yeah, um, that's pretty much about 
it from us. Um, that's all our plugs in. Obviously, you can go to SoundCloud, uh, the Pure Opery podcast, and you'll try, you know, check us out on there. We have a Facebook page. I mean, you can like it if you like. I'm not going to stop you. It's not North Korea, you know. You you do you him, but I mean, it's not. You're not going to get to see much there. Thanks again for listening to this. Um, a bit more um serious episode. I I say that, but you know what I mean. Uh, light and laughs. You know, high and learning. Uh, <laughs> and yep, thank you very much uh, for listening. And goodbye. Thank you for joining us tonight for the South Bank Show. And next week's episode, we will be taking a look at the new documentary, Through the Glass Table, The Life and Times of the Boogie Woogie Man, Jermaine Valiant.